Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Hi, ah, welcome to Herd Hell. We got one of our favorites back. You may have noticed there's a little bit of UK news in the news. Anytime we do that, we bring in our friend. She's a historian. She's a writer. She's one of Herd Tell's favorite guests, Sarah Stook, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, ma'am? I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. It's always very fun to do. Uh, glad to have you. Uh, yeah, slow news days in the UK. Nothing major going on. Uh, just, you know, a new PM, a new king, you know, just minor technicalities of life. Um, let, let's start right there, though. We're making a little bit of fun of it. Is But we, we've seen the London version of it. We've seen the media version of it. We've seen the American media version of it, which has been really interesting to watch. Take me to Grimsby. What's just the normal UK working class town folk? What are they doing the last couple of days? How's this been hitting them? Because we get the men on the street uh, kind of stuff, which is really funny because the first time Charles went by, they managed to get the one American in the crowd on the camera shot. What is it just around you, around Grimsby, around the Midlands, the rest of the country? How's a lot of this landing right now? People are very, you know, upset. I mean, floral tributes everywhere, people signing memorial books. I mean, because you knew it was going to happen one day. You know, she's, it's not like she's young, she's 90, she was 96. So when like the news came, because me and my parents were out, we were in Sheffield, which is just a little out of Grimsby. And, um, shopping so i didn't have like wasn't looking at my phone then later about like two o'clock it had news that the queen was being taken ill and they're all gone to balmoral so i was thinking that isn't very good so when we got home around like half three four we had like the news on for like the rest of the evening and then about quarter past half past six um the bbc news reader said oh announced that the queen has died and we're like oh this is very very weird yeah we were, we were talking to our friend ben up there he's like when you heard Liz Truss come out, basically her first address to the country, how's that for a hard gig? And the end of her speech, she goes, God save the king. It was just like, wow, that sounds weird. And then you it remember, does. like, there's there's very few people in living memory that have ever said that, you know, other than it's in film or joking weird. or something. And he and I asked him on the show and like he flubbed it. He couldn't even get it out of his mouth because it was just so bizarre to try to say. Exactly. I mean, my late grandfather, he served in um, during the funeral. 
it, when he was in the RAF, he was part of the funeral procession in London for her father. So, you know, you mentioned something to me, too. And I wanted to ask you about it. The military, we've seen all the tributes, of course. And, of course, Charles gets his Regency stuff, so he's been getting it as well. I don't know. Folks in America and the worldwide audience may not realize, you know, we take our oaths to the Constitution. They take their oaths to the Queen or the King. Now it'll be. Um, and that's a very real thing, even though it's still, you know, mostly a ceremonial position. That's a very real thing for the British military. And they feel these sorts of things very deeply, don't they? Yeah, well, my dad's ex-military, when he served, he swore allegiance to the Queen. And it's taken very seriously to the point where if there was like the the, monarch, uh, the prime ministers tried to do a coup, the army's loyal to the monarch so they could sort of counter coup it. And I mean, it sounds like something you'd have in like an African despot nation with lots of coups. But that's what would happen. I... You're the historian that we always bring on for historical context. You did a wonderful thread that is very long of all this stuff. How do you quantify something that started her reign we're talking about here, Queen Elizabeth, pre-space age, through the Internet age, through the social media age, to whatever we're calling our current age in the year of our Lord 2022? That's just a tremendous—the 70 years is one thing. The technology and time shift and the amount of history that's been condensed in that 70 years, you're a historian. You give us that perspective on this show. Usually it's mind boggling the amount of stuff that's happened in the last 70 years, isn't it? I mean, she was born in 1926. So to put it into context, Calvin Coolidge was president and now it's Joe Biden. I mean, she's seen, you know, from Coolidge to Biden, that's, you know, a lot of president. 30% of America has been, you know, through her reign. She's, you know, done it for that long. I think probably the best equivalent I can think of for Americans is when FDR died after 12 years in office. I mean, 12 years, 70 years is not comparable, but if you were young and you've never known anyone but FDR, it's kind of a shock. Yeah. We um we were talking about it too. Is there a comp to her, you know, obviously time-wise, that sort of thing, it's going to be Victoria. But I've asked other people this, what's your, is she above that now? Is she still going to be compared to Victoria? Is she paramount above everybody else? Where do you think this fall? I know there's going to be recency bias because she just died, but just the numbers and all of it and everything together, is, is that the comp or is she number one on the list now, do you think? Well, she's been, you know, longest serving for a couple of years. And if she'd lasted a couple more years, she would have beaten Louis the Sun, King of France. That's pretty impressive. Both she and Queen Victoria I mean, George III is another very long-lived one, have lived through, incredible. I mean, when the Queen was, you know, crowned, women couldn't get bank accounts without their husband's permission. Marital rape wasn't a crime in England until 1991. It's amazing things like that. The idea of a woman prime minister in 1953 would have been completely alien, and now we're on three. Yeah, and Theresa May talked about this when she gave her, her remarks in the Commons um, and she was talking about Thatcher, but she was talking about herself as extension. And of course, Liz Truss is now the prime minister, also a woman. She she just said she's like, it wasn't that hard of a thing because we had a female queen. So, of course, we can have a female prime minister. And of course, we can have and people can you know kind of say, well, it's sophistry. But she means it in the parliament, even though it's a ceremonial role. And we talked to our friends in parliament about it, they said the same thing. It's a very real thing. Her constant presence, the fact that she was there, the consistency of it. Even though it's a ceremonial role, it was an important role, and it was a very real thing for the British government, wasn't it? I mean, she is head of 
state. I remember when I went to Boston a few years ago, we looked around the um, like the state capital, the state building, and our tour guide said there was a certain place where you could only open the doors for the head of state. And David Cameron was really peeved they couldn't do it for him because he was head of government, not head of state. And that's the important, you know, difference. I mean, yeah, we, we've had quite a lot of, you know, female leaders in countries that aren't monarchies, you know, India, Pakistan, Australia. They are Commonwealth, though, if you notice, and lots of sort of Nordic countries. So I think that's a very good point. It makes it a bit more palatable that a woman could be in charge. To put it in perspective, talking to our friend Sarah Stuck, uh, you talked about her, her being born when Calvin Coolidge was president. Her first uh, official presidential audience was Harry Truman. And Joe Biden, our current president, was nine years old at the time. And of course, he's now 79. That's just mind boggling. Truman through, you said it already, the stat, 30 percent of all American history she reigned over. There's been so much change. All the presidents she saw through. There's one or two because you've always you've been on here doing your presidential list with us before. You know, we saw the picture like Reagan and Thatcher had a close relationship. Is there a certain U.S. presidential visit with the Queen that kind of sticks out in your mind? Well, she's met all of them by um, Lyndon Johnson, but she actually did meet Lady Bird Johnson quite a few years. That was later. probably a good thing considering how LBJ <laughs> conducted himself. Yeah, I think she probably, Princess Margaret, it was good to send Princess Margaret. I think she was more his wavelength. Uh, the ones I usually think of, um, well, there's the famous one where John and Jackie Kennedy came, and it's rumoured that she and Jackie kind of clashed a little bit. Um, I think she seemed to get on quite well with Reagan. The, uh, there's the uh, pictures of them ride uh, horses together, and everyone who knew the Queen knows she loved horses. Um, I think she seemed to get on quite well with Michelle Obama. And um, for all his sort of buff talk, she seemed to like Trump and he was very respectful of her. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Talking to our friend Sarah Stuck over in the UK. Some big doings over there you may have heard. Uh, talking about the historical parts of this. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to really start with this, but for those that don't know, we've had three King Charleses now. I think the bar's pretty low to say that he he's already probably, since he didn't die young and he's not going to be beheaded, he's probably beat out his predecessors. But you want to touch on that just real quick. What are the what are kind of the the expectations of Charles? Are folks just kind of hoping he holds the line? I don't think there's high expectations of him because he's following the legend. But what do people do expect from him? Do you think? Well, I think something I've noticed is that um, you know the Queen hasn't travelled abroad for years because you know she's been old and frail but you know Charles is younger he can probably do trips abroad so there'll be state visits and the White House might open its doors to him so of course obviously you have the younger royals going sort of in its place but we'll have the actual monarch be able to go out and go to and I think it's handy for him to go to like Australia and New Zealand to like sort of stop any rumblings of um, sort of republicanism <laughs> <laughs> shudder good monarchist that you are shudder that's a real thing though and there's already talk of him doing a commonwealth tour there was a lot of talk that when the queen died that the commonwealth would be an issue in a lot of places um a lot of people think that might have been tapped down a little bit now charles as long as he doesn't drop the ball they think it may maintain but they're obviously cognizant of it because they're already openly talking about him doing a full-blown commonwealth tour which of course hasn't happened in many many years The queen went to parts of it, but she didn't do the full thing that she did when she was younger, for example. Is the Commonwealth secure? Is there a feeling that it's going to be okay, at least for the near-term future, as long as Charles doesn't make a total shambles of it? I think some of the Caribbean islands are a bit of a a stretch, but I think Australia and New Zealand. Now, I spoke to my aunt um, who lives in Australia, and she said there's not a huge appetite apart from their current Prime Minister being a Republican. And it's actually uh, younger people in Australia who are really big fans. It's not just the older people, young people are as well, which I think is quite handy for them. Um, I can't really speak on New Zealand, but you know, if you look at the outpouring of grief and then the support for the new king, I'm pretty hopeful. Is the comment in, in England where you live... Is the Commonwealth still a big deal? Is it, it you know, under, obviously the the allyship of that and the economics and all that, but is it is it a thing that people are cognizant of? Of like, oh, we want this to remain. Is it something that's talked about? I don't think it's necessarily talked about a lot. Only really if you're very political or interested in the monarchy. I suppose most people probably support it, but there's not really like a a huge discussion of it as they probably should be but maybe often that conversations come about because of charles and they all said you know everyone thought when the queen died everything would go a bit rubbish talking about things that go uh rubbish i i don't think charles will make a terrible showing of it i don't know that he'll be spectacular but i think he'll do the job because it's just that's who that guy is Talk about the rest of the royal family, though, that's now on deck. William and Kate is on deck. Long, you know, they're respected by the public. They're loved by the public. A lot of the public would prefer him probably to be king right now than Charles. Let's just be honest about it. But they'll, they're probably content to wait 10 or 15, 20 years, whatever it's going to be. How is this, does this change William and Kate's place? Uh, other than obviously they get the titles Prince and Princess of Wales. What's their viewpoint now? Because, you know, here you are. He's a heartbeat away now. 
Well, if you think about it, they probably don't want to be king and queen yet because their kids are still quite young. When the kids are growing up, it's a lot of an easier transition. And if something, you know, God forbid, happened to Charles or he abdicated, that is going to make their life a lot harder. Because if you think about it, you know, Charles and Anne were very young when the queen came to the throne. Andrew and Edward know nothing but their mother being queen. So I think it'd be nice for their children to, like, just be children, even though, you know, um, George is now second in line to the throne. Yeah, and the other thing we were talking about, somebody on Twitter gamed it out. Of course, you're just guessing, but, you know, Charles is in his mid-70s, William's in his early 40s, and George is very young. Excuse me. And George is very young. We may not see another reigning queen in our lifetime the way the secession line is stacking up. Of course, you know, when Elizabeth came to the throne, there was probably very few of anybody that had living memory of Victoria. But... It, and even if George has a girl first, you're probably looking at 80, 90, 100 years before you get a reigning queen again. Does that make the Elizabethan reign, Elizabeth the Great, um, Boris Johnson called her, and I think that's fair. Do you think her legend and her legacy just grows over time since this is probably going to be a rare event in living memory for quite a while? Well, we only, uh, there's only one uh, queen regnant in the world, and it's the uh, queen of is always it Netherlands or Denmark? It's one of those two, and I can't remember right now which one it is, but it's one of them. Um, so every every other reigning monarch is a dude. So yeah, it kind of takes the magic away a bit. But I think when you think of, if I asked an American, what royals do you think of, like monarchs, they'd probably say Henry VIII, George III, Victoria, and our current well, Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, you think of the women and. You, and all of them, because there are fewer women regnants than there are men, we've only had, you know, Matilda is, and Lady Jane Grey are disputed, but there's um, Mary First, Mary Second, Elizabeth I, Elizabeth II, Anne and Victoria. So it's not too many, but they're all, you know, very well remembered. And, you know, Elizabeth I, for example, and Victoria and Elizabeth II lived, had fairly long reigns. Uh, Sarah Stook joining us. Okay, you are a historian, so we're going to have some historic stuff here. Obviously, the funeral. We're going to have the coronation of Charles III. Boy, that sounds weird to say, but there it is. What's a couple of things you're watching for? Obviously, the world leaders are going to gather for both of those events. At least the funeral will probably have everybody. I know President Biden's already announced he's going to attend. As a historian, you know, weddings and funerals for the royal family, those are the big events coronations which are even more rare what's a couple of the things historically you're watching for here coming up i think it'll be interesting to see um which countries come to the funeral because obviously they've said there's limited space it's only the um head of state and the spouse or somebody representing them so it won't be like biden mrs biden and and all like kamala harris and the obamas and that will go it'll just be um Joe and Jill Biden go in. We'll be interested to see what countries send representatives. Also, you've got the major religions. So the Pope or, well, he, I 
don't know if he will go, but at least the representatives of the Holy See will go. There'll be, you know, rabbis and imams and, you know, sheikhs and all, of all religions. Obviously, Putin isn't going to come because, you know, yeah, for obvious reasons, but I'm sure Russia will probably just have their ambassador go. I mean, pretty much every country apart from maybe like North Korea and a few others will send somebody, which is pretty remarkable. John Paul II's funeral is the biggest in history, but this is going to, you know, blow out of the water. Yeah, I wonder if Larnoff's going to come because his side family lives in London anyway, so he might try to sneak over for it. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, uh, I wonder, though, the funeral is going to be a big deal. Nobody over under the age of 80 has a living memory of a coronation. I know they're going to kind of be back to back. They'll space them out for the morning period. How big a deal is that? Because that doesn't happen that often. You may have you may folks may get to see two or three in their lifetime now after this, but they haven't seen one of these. How big a deal is that going to be? Well, I think because obviously I've I'm one of we're both one of those people who've never seen it. So it's going to be quite, you know, it's going to blow any presidential inauguration out of the water because us or haters, the Brits do pomp and ceremony like absolutely no one does. So it's going to be very grand and very lavish, full of colour and jewels. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of. I'm kind of questioning your bona fides here, though. Did you suggest that the Pope should come to the English monarchs? Look, Henry VIII did not behead wives just to have a papist show up at official ceremonies. What are you doing? He will go. I don't think he will go. He's. You know, he has a lot of mobility, but they'll send a representative. But well, the last time a monarch died was in 1952, so you know it's been a while. So you can't really compare what it'd be like. Now, but I think we've sort of toned away from the whole breaking from Rome thing because that did happen quite a long time ago. I don't know. Grudges run deep over yonder, Sarah Stuck joining us. We're having a little bit of fun with this because it, it has been a heavy thing and a busy day. Let, let's turn to the future, though. Um, Liz Trust is now the prime minister. Talk about your tough road to hoe, your second day office, the queen dies. Second full day in office, the queen dies. Uh, Parliament's doing their their remembrances, and then they're going to dissolve. I forget the big fancy word y'all use for that. It starts with a P. Um, so you'll you're going to have a new government all the way down. You have Charles as the you know ceremonial head of state. You're going to have a, a, the same Parliament, but it's Liz Truss with a whole lot going on. The cost of living crisis is going on. Of course, foreign affairs are going on. This is really kind of a critical time in the UK right now. Northern Ireland's a bit of a mess at the moment. You've got migrant crises. There's a lot of stuff on the UK's plate this fall. Once they go through all this pomp and circumstance you're talking about, it's going to be a very bleak reality check kind of political fall, isn't it? I think in some ways it was kind of handy for Liz Truss. Well, I don't want to say handy, but the Queen's Eye sort of gave her a bit of a reprieve. I agree. But We've got the energy crisis, which is going to see bills go ridiculously expensive. And, you know, that's going to be what people are focusing on. And if you can't produce cheaper energy bills, then, you know, that's hand-wrapped gift for labor. Yeah, for folks that um, in the U.S., because we've been dealing with it a little bit, but it's not been per percentage-wise as bad here are folks noticing it when they go to the market, when they're buying goods, when they're trying to get around? Of course, you're having uh, transportation strikes on top of everything else right now, which that isn't helping either. 
how noticeable is it? I know it's the number one issue when they poll it, but day to day, how how much is it really affecting folks? Because it seems to be like it's it, there's no real going to be reprieve in sight here. You you know, so everything has gone up from you know going to the chip shop, uh, general groceries. Everything has uh, gone up. You guys would have an absolute fit if you saw our petrol prices. Like you guys really don't like expensive petrol. Ours is way much more than yours is. I know you guys you know, don't have a public transportation system, yada, yada, yada. But you guys would like, if you get upset at your fuel prices, you would just faint at ours. Oh, yeah. I remember first time I went to Germany, I'm like, you pay how much for gas over here? Because, you know, of course, we have coupons and SO credits and things like that. But I was like, what do you mean you pay five, six dollars a gallon for gas? This is outrageous. This is back when gas was like a dollar fifty in the States. So, yeah, it's a different world over there. Definitely. Sarah Stuck joining us. Okay, I know it's your belly wake, so I'm going to throw it to you. The queen, of course, was always very proper, very, you know, she became, I don't think style icon is the right term, but the hats and the, and the, you know, the way she dressed, it was definitely her style. I don't know that Camilla is going to exactly like the style world on fire, but I did notice you're somewhat chomping at the bit to get Kate in there because you, you can feel the fashion going up a couple clicks, can't you? Oh, she always looks so elegant so proper for every occasion and you know she mixes it up a bit like she wears trousers which you know the queen and camilla probably would very rarely if ever do and she also looked like she was yeah you know, if you look at her wedding dress it's very sort of grace kelly bringing lace back yeah she'll be so stylish she already is i think she's just so elegant you know, what you imagine a duchess and a future queen to wear she's totally got the style bit down pat yeah, we're going to have to get that girl a pair of jeans or something, work it out. Uh, Sarah Stuck, okay, friends hold friends accountable. I got to point your attention to one of your tweets here, though. Uh, I actually agree with this one, but some folks may not. You said, and I quote, there needs to be a miniseries about Warren G. Harding administration. Uh, would that be a PG, a PG-13, or a good hard R on some prestige network, your your idealization of the Warren G. Hardy ministry? Well, I've um, just been reading a book called Accidental Presidents, which is about you know the eight presidents who came to office after their predecessor either died or was assassinated. So I've just read the Warren G. Harding chapter. And I was reading, and like, I'm already aware of how bad it was, but when you like sort of read the nitty gritty into it, just how corrupt, like the first cabinet officer ever to get prison time, it needs to be a, you know, a hard out. It needs to show the parties and the illegal prohibition drinking, the, you know, the sex and the scandal and the poker parties. I mean, a girl died at one of the parties. She was dancing on a table, somebody threw a bottle at her, hit her on the head, and she died. Lord, is America ready to see a president? Uh doing the nasty in the cloakroom though do you think if you like you said warren g harding and lbj would make trump look like an altar boy so yes yeah. you guys need it and we we've had you know everyone knows henry dates exploits but some of your presidents I mean, look at kennedy that man was a machine in all the wrong ways which for a disabled guy was pretty impressive actually if you kind yeah, of yeah him and fdr fdr was in a wheelchair having affairs you know you've got to respect the hustle we we not our finest hours when it comes to presidents sometimes, but what do you do? But we could go down the royal line and y'all got a couple of your yourselves. Sarah Stuck, we always love having you. Appreciate your time today. Uh let folks know what you've got going on, what you're working on when you know we don't have monarchs changing hands and where they can follow you until we get you back on because you are a frequent guest and we appreciate you greatly. 
Well, the mallard is um, not publishing anything until after the funeral because it's the mourning period. Um, but I'm continuing my elections daily pieces on presidential runners up. I'm on stop. I'm writing part two. Um, for the uh, mallard, I'm going to be writing next about um, medieval marriages, the Regency marriage market, and uh, literal wit witch hunts in the 21st century, like in India and Nepal. Yeah. I that I will be all over. Yeah, the Mallard uh having a little fun with it. They they call it the regime change issue, uh, which was kind of cute. So be on the lookout for that. We'll link to all that. Sarah Stook, our friend in Grimsby. Always appreciate your time, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you ma'am. <laughs> Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to take something that is really, really loud. We're going to turn the noise down on it. Going to get to an aspect of it that a lot of people just kind of skipped over that I think needs to be paid attention to. We're going to talk about these Martha Vineyard flights. We're going to talk about these buses going to D.C. Going to talk immigration, talk migrants, going to talk refugees and asylum seekers. This is the guy we want to talk to it about. Another of our great Young Voices contributors. He's a political science guy. Daniel Chang Contreras, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for having me. I'm doing great. All right. You're in D.C. right now because you're studying one of them prestigious university things that, you know, us community college kids, they didn't want to talk to us, but that's OK. <laughs> uh, I went back later online. Um, you're in D.C. Let's start there because this feels like there's a couple different narratives going here. At one. one of them is the D.C. national media political commentary at bubble narrative. You can probably speak to that because you're in D.C. right now. Then there's the wider nation looking at it from afar. And then there's the people actually involved in these things. Let's take those separately. Let's start with the D.C. narrative. You're in D.C. You're talking to these people. You're on a university campus. Start there when this story hit with the Martha's Vineyard and then shipping folks to uh, Naval Conservatory. That's the vice president's residence. Start there with this story, how it hit you when you found out about it over the weekend. Uh, well, so I found out, uh, I found out about most of the other things on Twitter. And uh, so the, the DC narrative is basically as you expect. Um, it's basically portraying Governor Ron DeSantis, Governor Abbott, uh, in this case, Abbott, because Abbott sent the, the migrants to DC specifically, which had sent the send them to Marshall's Vineyard as playing with immigrants as political pawns, as being particularly cruel, uh, saying that, of course, Martha's Vineyard or Washington, D.C., New York, etc., they don't have the capacities to deal with migrants. These, actually, this issue has been going for a while, as we all know. Actually, Major, uh, Major Muriel Bowser has called the National Guard for a while to try to deal with migrants. So that's a narrative, basically, uh, painting, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Abbott as using immigrants as political pawns to get uh, better points with the Republican base and trying to basically tease off uh, the Democrats and, and in D.C. and uh, in blue cities. That's like the media narrative itself, which is like the narrative that we've been he hearing all around um, since these flights and, and bus buses started going on. OK, let's break a couple of those things down, though, because there's no version of this 
from any side where this isn't using people for political gains. Like that's just the base. There, there's no yeah. version of this where they're not using these people. So everybody's being disingenuous on that. Yeah. I don't think it's gaining us anything to parse out who's being the le- least in- disingenuous and who's being the most useful for these pawns. So I want to bring it to you this way. I heard very few people talking about who these people actually were other than just the average. Some of them got specific and said, well, they're asylum seekers. Most people just said they're migrants or immigrants or illegal immigrants. Pick your poison with that. I heard very few people talking about who these people actually are. So let's start where we talked about. There's different narratives going here. Who were the actual people being used in these stunts? And they are stunts. Even if you agree with it, it's a stunt. Yeah, yeah. I think this is an important piece of this discussion because who they're using was not accidental, but nobody's talking about who these people as a people group specifically is. But you know who these folks are, don't you? Of course. They're Venezuelans. Um, they're Venezuelans. They're, uh, I'm Venezuelan as well. I know the situation uh, of Venezuelan migrants as any uh, of my compatriots know. And it has been a situation that is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the Western Hemisphere over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, And it's basically the United States has been coming into this crisis, the refugee crisis, the Venezuelan refugee crisis, late in the game. Uh, You guys, because, of course, uh, geographically, uh, quite quite far uh, far from the United, from Venezuela, haven't really suffered it in many ways. But now, uh, you know, it has come into effect. It has come in. and, and, And now the Venezuelan crisis has come into the United States. The reality of this is that while we talk about uh, asylum seekers, while we talk about Venezuelan migrants, as if it's with, as if were any other nationality, as we're talking about Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, Guatemalans, etc., the reality is that Venezuelan crisis is very, very different. It's very specific as well. It's a very it has a political origin, and Republicans know this because they've telling they've been telling this for for years. And Democrats try to ignore it in some regards because of some ideological issues. But the, the reality is that the Venezuelan crisis has left. A 6.8 million people fleeing the country since 2017, 2018. Um, that's almost a quarter of the country in just four or five years have left Venezuela because of the socialist policies of Nicolas Maduro. And a majority of people actually haven't gone to the United States, right? I mean, a lot of people might say, might say oh, well, they're coming here. Majority of Venezuelans have left to Colombia, to Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina. Uh, Panama, they actually even left to Trinidad and Tobago in the, in rafts as well. So Venezuelans are leaving the country in a, an astonishing rate. This is like, imagine like 25% of America left in four years. That's the, the magnitude of the, the issue we're talking about here. And those are the people that are being bused to Washington, D.C. They're being bused to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and as you said, yeah, used as political stunts. To be fair, um, many of these people use this probably this bus to get to new york to get to washington dc and from then they'll go other where uh, other place where they have some family and friends and they can like settle in um that's most likely the uh, not what they will do but the reality is that the united states is now facing the reality of the venezuelan refugee crisis and instead of having an appropriate policy response we are trying to include the Venezuelan crisis within the uh, broader themes of immigration and the broader, politi- broader political um, fights between Democrats and Republicans on immigration, wh- which I would think it's actually uh, both not correct in a moral term and also it's not even, not even good in a policy term because the uh, root problems are very different.
And one of those root problems, uh, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. Here, here's one of the root problems we don't talk about. Everybody understands that the southern border border is a mess. Like everybody knows that's a problem. The problem is too. You have to parse out who's down there, and we don't do that. We just broad brush it, like we say. Well, because you say illegal immigrants on the southern border, everybody immediately starts thinking, well, probably Mexicans or other South Americans, but primarily Mexican, Hispanic thing. How are these Venezuelans that are coming into America, getting to the southern border, asking for asylum, and then getting bust and or flown somewhere else? We're just picking on the last part of that. If you go look at a map, that's a freaking journey. They're not they're not walking that there's ways that they're having to get there. That is a trek. It is dangerous. You've wrote about this before. And it was funny because you re-upped your piece on this and, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Go read it for yourself. And you're like, this was horrible. And this was two years ago. And it's even gotten worse. Yeah. Why? Why does that part matter? Because people are like, well, they're coming illegally. So it doesn't matter. No, it does matter because when they're seeking asylum, that's a legal definition. That's a specific process and understanding what they go through to get here is part of what they can argue when they seek asylum, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And that's really important. What you point out. Um, I, I understand the temptation of saying, oh, illegal immigrants, they all speak Spanish. They're probably from Mexico or uh, the Northern Triangle are really close. They just cross Mexico and that's it. The reality is very different. As you said, Venezuela is far from the south, southern border. It's extremely far. It's not something that you do like in a in a regular basis, right? It's actually you not know, something that we did, like Venezuelans did historically. It's something that has, uh, it's a phenomenon that has appeared over the last couple of years, actually, because the situation in Venezuela back home is really bad. That's why it's happening. It's not like historically Venezuelans go to appear in the Rio Grande and, and claim for asylum. No, actually, right? In 2019, in fiscal year 2019, 2020, it's like 5,000 encounters. Now we have 155,000 encounters on this fiscal year, and it hasn't ended yet. So the numbers are quite substantial. And what they do now, what, what Venezuelans do, when I wrote the piece that you referred, usually Venezuelans did get into Mexico by plane and then they trekked through Mexico, uh, basically being at the mercy of the cartels and coyotes and all that. But today, most Venezuelans don't do that because uh, thanks to Biden, by the way, Mexico imposed really severe visa restrictions on Venezuelans to avoid Venezuelans getting into the south southern border. And that didn't work out. What it did was that Venezuelans are now going through the Darien Gap, which is a very uh, remote jungle between uh, Colombia and Panama. They trek that uh, that gap where a lot of people die. This is really, 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 really grisly, really bad things happening to the Darien Gap. We're talking about uh, people dying of uh, dehydration, people dying of exhaustion, people being uh, killed, people being uh, subjected to torture by cartels and criminals and all that and gangs. They cross through the rain gap and they then walk all the way up uh, to towards uh, the Rio Grande. And by the way, this is not the only route of migrants, of Venezuelan migrants walking uh, until they get to destinations. This type of route also happened a couple of years before, but it wasn't to the United States, it was to Peru, it was to Chile. Uh, it was more in the, in the southern continent. So what I went, really want to point out here and to especially to American audience, this is not something that all oh, the United States is, why are we picking all the Venezuelan immigrants? Why are they coming here? They're in, the United States is just the last country on the large list that is suffering the effects of the uh, humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. It has been going on for, for a long while in South America, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, they can talk about it. And now the United States is just another name into the list. Just the United States just got caught, on, caught off guard. Yeah, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. All right, here's where this gets sticky. 
So they go through this process, and this is the same for all asylum seekers and people that are trying to get to the border to get some kind of legalization process going because that's something else that gets lumped in. It's like, hey, some of those folks are coming to the border. They're coming to places they're told that this is where you go to try to get into the country. That's what they're told, whether it's true or not. That's what they're being told. So they get to the border and they start trying to seek asylum or claim asylum. And to do that, because the way the laws are written, you have to be on U.S. soil to claim U.S. asylum. Yeah. That's where this gets really messy. These people now, again, like you just said, they've been trekking through the jungle. They've been, you know, low cost airlines. And then however they can get to the border, they get to the border sometimes by very, you know, malicious means that we'll deal with some other time. If they don't have a good information and we don't have a good coherent policy, like you said, you know, the the Trump administration had one policy. Biden had an administration. They've been in court working on the Trump administration policy. When Trump came in, he was in court trying to fix the Obama era policy. We do not have coherent policy. Let's just lay that out. Whether you like it or not, it's not coherent. So all these folks are being told is come to the border, get your feet on U.S. soil and ask for asylum. Mm -hmm. That's what they're told. So when they get to the border, that's when this starts getting really, really messy, not just humanitarian, but legally it's messy because a lot, even the American experts on immigration argue over what actually is the process right now right yeah that's correct um as you as you said uh the united i would say it's not that we have uh, the united states doesn't have a coherent policy sometimes the abuse doesn't have any policy um the Biden administration has done some basic some things to steam basically the the the, the flow of my open asylum refugees trying to take asylum in the united states it hasn't really worked it has implemented tps but that tps doesn't cover the people who came uh, the most, the majority of people who came through the border, and of course, as you said, a lot of the Venezuelan migrants that come here, they uh, go to the U.S. or they claim asylum, and the asylum process is broken in many ways. Uh, taking to one uh, one asylum case can, you know, uh, before it actually gets heard and it actually gets decided, can be years in the making, right? It can be long time before a court actually decides what it will if the asylum seeker. Uh, gets asylum or not and of course people come here in the meantime they got some work permits and they can try to uh rehash their life for a while so of course the united states the combination of uh humanitarian catastrophe in venezuela and a lack of policy a clear policy on the venezuelan issue on the venezuelan migratory issue as the united states uh, has created this situation and by the way let me i will repeat this again it's not like it's not something new. The United States should have known that this was coming because Colombia has been facing this for years now. Um, Peru and all the countries in South America, apparently. But of course, uh, policymakers sometimes think that anything below the Rio Grande sometimes really doesn't exist. Uh, and now the chickens that come to roost, of course, the United States will be suffering from the, I want to say even suffering, being affected by the refugee crisis of Venezuela. And unless Democrats or Republicans get their uh, act together, this will continue going on without um a clear legal and policy um policy procedures to get this done yeah daniel chan Contreras joining us uh, we're going to take a quick break uh come back we're going to talk about why the venezuelan folks were the ones being used for these political stunts going to talk about how that played off the ins and outs of some of the tricky parts that the media skipped over we're going to talk about the people side of this as well not just the policy side daniel chan Contreras joins us as we continue on her tell right after this
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we got Daniel Chan Contreras. We're talking the uh, immigrant. Uh, I don't even know what we need an overarching term for this because we have the Martha Vineyard part, we got the bus part, we got the vice president house part, we got the New York part, the DC part. In that part of the problem, though, is because this thing unthreads so many different ways and the stunts become the thing. And then that's all anybody ever talks about. And now they're, you know, here in another day or two, everybody will forget about it and move on. Like you said, though, this is a constant problem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, according to Border Patrol, 50,499 encounters were from Venezuelans in fiscal year 21, 155,553 this fiscal year, which hasn't ended. And we already have approximately 300,000 Venezuelans who have requested uh, temporary protected status. It is a ongoing problem, and it's an ongoing problem that has been caused by the Venezuelan situ the political situation back home, back in Venezuela. This is something, by the way, which I think, Andrew, is really important to, to, to point out here. <clears throat> and one of the things that really concerns me uh, is the way Republicans have been framing the issue in Venezuelans. Because, of course, since these stunts are made to highlight the problem of the border, which is a, a, it's a disaster, and of course, to highlight hypocrisy of Democrat majors and all that, which I understand it's a political ploy that's a fair many points. The problem here is that we are now, Republicans are now confounding the venezuelan issue with illegal immigrants right after years of them being of they saying oh the venezuelan situation is so bad communism is so bad socialism is so bad this is what socialism causes to a country destroys a country and the venezuelan people are now suffering from it and that was all good all good or great and actually was true and, and empathetic and they say somehow say the same thing about cubans cubans are not uh refugee are not illegal immigrants or refugees because they, they're escaping a communist dictatorship oh but the venezuelans were ox who are also being ruled by a similar uh, dictatorship, they are illegal immigrants just because, of course, the ploy requires them to be illegal immigrants, right? So that's what actually concerns me quite a lot, that the Republican Party, who has been quite consistent on the way that characterized the Venezuelan crisis, now in these moments, because, of course, the political necessities dictate in that way, they change a little bit the tune. It's like, oh, Venezuelans are no longer... Uh, you know, like kind of victims of communism, they're more another illegal immigrants are coming to the country. That's something that I consider it's uh, worrisome as a, as a Venezuelan and as a conservative as well. Here's the thing. Let's be adults here. When whoever planned this for, and I know DeSantis and Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis, they're getting the flack because these are their programs. They, pro they didn't handpick these folks. Somebody in their chain of command and their staffs did this. Somebody purposefully said, let's get the Venezuelans for this. They did that purposefully. They didn't get, you know, folks from any other country. They didn't use uh, Mexicans. They didn't use any other group. I know it's speculation. I don't think that's accidental. It can't be accidental of all the folks down there. They know the asylum process is more legally fraught. They know it's more complicated. They know that the, uh, the situation of these folks is a little different. Why did they pick the Venezuelan folks for this, do you think? Because it's happened more than once now, so it's not accidental. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. Wow. I mean, actually, the majority of people being bust around. It's not like only Martha's Vineyard or the vice president's home. It's like the majority of them are Venezuelans. Uh, I wouldn't know. As you said, it's a speculative. I don't know the inner and outs and like the process it works. But my working theory is basically most Venezuelans who cross the border immediately ask for asylum. I mean, they cross the border and immediately ask for asylum because that's the way that that migratory flow is working. Right. So when, when, when you ask for asylum, of course, you have to report to, to government, basically. Right? You have to report to uh, border agents. You have to report to immigration officers in some ways. 
that makes the Venezuelan pool of uh, of migrants of refugees easier to detect, basically, than those from other countries that don't try to uh, claim asylum and try to actually uh, go into the country without being caught by migrate, um, immigration officers. That's what I think, first one. And the second one, of course, as you said, the situation is quite fraught. Venezuelans, we are very new at this, uh, are trying to get this, uh, um, trying to get, uh, of crossing the border. This is not a history of Venezuelan crossing the U.S. border. So, of course, people who come here can be easily dissuaded to try to go and pick a bus, maybe watch for them, actually. Maybe they want to go to New York, whatever. The situation is fraught. A lot of them probably don't know a lot of English. And, you know, it's a, a bit easier to get them to uh, uh, to agree. Probably a lot of them do agree and just want to go further north. And, like, they say, okay, I'll pick the free, the free ride. So I think it's a combination of both factors. One, that the Venezuelan pool is easier to detect. That's my working theory. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's not true. It's just completely speculative. And the second one is, of course, the situation is a little bit more fraud. A lot of Venezuelans, it's the first time they're doing from the United States. They don't have a lot of people who are trying to, it's just not a history, right? Of Venezuelans trying to cross into the United States through the Rio Grande. So it's easier for them to um, believe anything, really, what they, they're told. The sad truth of this, um, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. The sad truth of this is, I think everybody got what they wanted out of this episode, the Martha's Vineyard episode. You know, this Governor DeSantis, he got his national pub. The anti-immigration folks got to throw a big fit. The pro-immigration fans got to say, oh, look how well we treated these people before we you know, shipped them off to Cape Cod, which, by the way, that's that's been a refugee place for years and years and years. That's 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 exactly where you put somebody like that. So that was all noise, too, by the way. Um, what do we do now? Because everybody got what they wanted out of this story. This is going to happen again. They're going to oh, keep yeah. doing this. Everybody, both sides. They're going to keep doing yeah, yeah, this because yeah. everybody got what they wanted out of it. So what do we do next time? Because there's going to be a next time. Well, that's that's something that really concerns me is the fact that it will continue happening. Venezuelans are now now part of the American political game, sometimes very political toxic game uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And there will not be a policy. And that's something that I said in, a, in Twitter thread. It was in Spanish, but I'll try to translate it. The fact that this Martha's Vineyard episode, beside the hypocrisies of both parties and all that, shows that there is a lack of policy, a lack of coherent policy by the United States government to attend the biggest humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere. And it will continue going on this way. You will see more buses going being shipped to uh, Washington, to New York, to other blue cities. Blue cities will, you know, do a photo up and say we treated them well and they shipped them off. Um, but the reality is that Venezuelans will still be the victim after this. I mean, the consequences of this is that Venezuelan asylum seekers do not have, there's not a policy to uh, take care of the Venezuelan refugee problem. And now that it's become politicized, there's even less chances for there to be a coherent policy response to the Venezuelan refugee crisis. A crisis that, and I really want to really point this out again and again and again and again, is not a unique American situation. It has been going on in the entire continent for years. 6.8 million people in the last four to five years, that's a quarter of the population. That's like 80 to 90 million Americans left in four years. That's the, the, the situation. That's the, uh, it is almost at the same size as the Ukraine and the Syrian refugee crisis without a war. That's the size of the problem we're talking about. Americans only get a little bit of it four years later and it, got, um, it caught the American government and the political establishment uh, off guard. Yeah. Um, to put a bow on this, you tweeted about this. Extensively. I'm going to paraphrase and condense this because this Twitter thread was in Spanish and a lot of us don't hobble. So you tell me if I'm wrong on any of this, <laughs> but I'm going to try to paraphrase some of what you were getting to. 
And basically what you started driving at, because you started getting pushback on Twitter and you started responding to it. A lot of the same tropes we hear about the southern border is like, oh, well, Venezuelans, they're just sending us, you know, they're emptying their prisons and sending us all their bad folks. Or and then you went and this one really hit me because I think you're right. I think this is going to happen. I'm going to quote you here. And this is the Google Translate. So if it's a little off, you tell me. (laughs) But it it said in two years, you're going to see Republicans. And again, they've always said these are communist refugees. We need to help these people. What's going on in Venezuela? Correctly. What's going on in Venezuela is a humanitarian tragedy. This was one of the richest nations in the world through uh, natural resources and other ways. And they completely wrecked the economy in basically one decade. You said several Republicans, you're going to start seeing them say, well, Venezuela isn't really that bad, that it's been fixed. Why not just make them all go back? I'm afraid you're right, but I'm afraid you're right because we're starting to hear that about Cuba. We've started to hear that about other places that uh, legal immigrants even come to. There's this real hardcore wing, and it's always been there. You can go back to the 1880s and see the exact same propaganda of, well, you're native born or you need to go back. That kind of garbage. I think you're right, because we've seen this over and over again all throughout American history where you have this anti And again, I'm not talking about illegal immigration, which is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Legal immigration, asylum seekers, refugees that we probably should be doing some kind of accommodation for. I think you're right to say that. What are you watching for in the next, you know, like we said, they're going to keep doing these events. What are you watching for in the next few years that are going to be warning signs that the tide like that is turning? Well, I think one of the most important things to note will be the way and the narrative that turns the uh, that Republican and conservative media outlets use to describe the Venezuelan situation, right? Until now, until a couple of months, it was always, Venezuela was used as a talking point for a campaign speech saying, this is what socialism does. It's really bad. People are fleeing for their lives or escaping a communist regime, which this is all true. But if that tone when they talk about Venezuela, it changes from this is an example of what socialism can do to, oh, look, this is another example of what Biden failed immigration policy has done. And they're bringing uh, criminals and all that. There's this Breitbart report that uh, came out saying about talking about that, which I think is really inconsistent with Lindsay. If this is the new talking point when they talk about Venezuela, just the migratory issue and completely forget the root cause of the problem, which is communism, socialism. If that's going on, then I'm afraid the Republican uh, talking points and the Republican rhetoric on Venezuela will change drastically and will go on and will they will just simply lump it in as it was another immigration problem of, like I don't know, Mexico and, and El Salvador or Guatemala or whatever. Yeah, and this is a problem, whether it's immigration, education, spending, whatever. When you start lumping things into buzzwords, you don't get any kind of good policy out of that because these things are complicated and you got to turn the noise down. That's why I have people like you on my friend, Daniel Chancontreras, joining us. Uh, Till we get you back, I'm going to have you back because we're going to keep talking about this. This is going to continue to be an issue, unfortunately, for the Venezuelan people. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. We're going to, we got your social media up on the screen. Let folks know what you got going on until they see you on Hertel again, my friend. Uh, yeah, you can go, you guys can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, I usually post my thoughts over there, both in, in Spanish and English. And also write for El American, which is a conservative media outlet aimed at, at Hispanics. I occasionally write there. So anything that I post, I'll post it over there. Great job, buddy. Good information. We're going to keep talking about this because this stuff is complicated. And until you get into the little nitty gritty details of it, that's why our policies fail, because everybody wants to pick out their one tree in the forest, cut it down and then think the problem solved. That's not how these things work. And we need to focus on these as people problems first and then the policy will follow. Daniel Chan Contreras, love talking. Good time. 
we'll do it again real soon, sir. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face. Love having these on. We're going to go almost all the way out west, at least where those mountains get real, real big. Look, I grew up in West Virginia. We got hills. They got mountains. Denver Post columnist, uh, Krista Kafer. So glad you're joining us. Thank you so much for the time, man. It's great to be here. This is going to be there. fun. Well, here, <laughs> there, over yonder, up yonder. Mom, Mom's listening up yonder, up on top of our mountain. How you doing, Mom? Uh, if the Facebook's working, you never can tell because we don't have broadband in West Virginia yet. We'll talk about that some other time. Um, they just got they just got off dial up like six years ago. It's crazy. There's no I can't do this show when I go home because I have to get I can get a hotel room and get enough Internet to do it. That's the only way I can do it. It's that That's bad. crazy. It is crazy. It's an economic issue. We'll paying that out some other time. Um, you write at the Denver Post. I guess you just decided you had enough friends in the world and didn't want to be popular in the internet because you wrote a column. I can't believe I'm going to say this defending virtue signaling. <laughs> now I, I, I see some hot takes from time to time, but that's a new one. Uh, Krista Kafer, defend your peace. <laughs> you know, we all do it, right? We all do virtue signaling. Everybody's at some point had a bumper sticker on the back of their car, maybe a, a sign in their yard. Even the things that we say and tweet, it's a way of signaling that we're in the group, that we agree with others. It's a way of telling people who are outside of the group that, hey, we're not like them. We're like these people. And I get that. It's fine. Where I draw the line is when legislators start using taxpayer money to virtue signal through their ordinances or laws. I'm thinking, you know what? Get a sign, buddy. Yeah. And it's funny enough, I'm a nomenclature guy. So let's talk nomenclature because part of the problem is with virtue signaling is it means whatever you want it to mean, right? And different people use it differently. And the tone of voice I put it in, because I can say virtue signaling, I can say you're virtue signaling, you know, it just changes it. Cambridge actually sat down and made a definition of this thing. They say it's an attempt to show other people that you are a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable, keyword here, to them especially on social media. Now there's an urban dictionary one too, but we have to be FCC compliant for the radio. So we'll skip that one. Is that a good definition? Do you think working? Because I think the two key words there, I'm not big on grammar. My editors will tell you this. I'm terrible at it, but I think the to them and expressing that you are, is kind of the keys there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm expressing to other people. So let's put it this way. If, um, if, if, I'm a big pro-lifer, um, something I've been involved with for the better half of my life. Even when I was a Democrat, now I'm a Republican, I've been an independent, but I've always been pro-life. Now, if some crazy nutball out there were to shoot up a clinic, and it has happened, most of it in the deep past, but I would feel sort of like I had to say something on Twitter to say, look, I hate violence, all violence and murder is bad. Even though anyone who knows me knows that I am pro-life, I love all people, I'm against the death penalty, I'm against, basically against killing unless it's in self-defense. And yet I would feel like I'd have to virtue signal to say, look, I'm pro-life, but I hate this thing. Similarly, I, you know, people on the left, friends on the left of mine, they may have a sign in their yard that says science is real and love is love and all this stuff. They're signaling to other neighbors like them that, hey, they're open-minded, they're tolerant, they love women, they love immigrants, they 
think uh, gay marriage is a good thing. I don't begrudge them that. If they want to do that, if that makes them feel good, you know what? I can just look at the uh, the trees and the bushes. I don't have to look at their sign. Has This is going to be a weird question, but I've been thinking a lot about this because um, oldest daughter got her first little house and she has very strong political viewpoints. And then, of course, the house right across the street has flags and yard flags and the yard signs and all kinds of paraphernalia for the opposite of her views. And mm -hmm. I'm like, welcome to being an adult kid. This is just what it is. Um, has merchandising really, really ruined political virtue signaling? Because now you can just get the shirt or you can just get the hat or you can get the bumper sticker. You can get the, and I know this has really gotten ramped up the last few years because our, you know, Trumpian friends have really took it to another level. But let's be honest, at some point, you know, our progressive friends are going to figure out this a good slogan. They're going to have good merchandising too. We've all seen it. Is merchandising really screwing up our viewpoint on this because we really can't spend money on it? And then where you spend your money, that's where your heart goes. The old saying goes, I don't think we can separate those two things in this particular instance, can we? No, it's kind of gotten corporate. It's become sort of corporatized. I, I think about, what is it, the whole month of, I don't know if it's February or March, it's a gay pride month. And yet, you know, you got Target and Walmart and all, I don't know about Walmart, but definitely Target and a whole bunch of different retailers putting out rainbow this and rainbow that and you know i'm from the 70s i liked it better when the rainbow was just the rainbow but now it's like there's all this merchandise that comes out and it's not even i mean how exactly is the rainbow and rainbow colored shoes or jewelry actually related to gay pride i don't know but it's definitely corporatized it and i guess you know people like to wear on their person or their car or their house things that signal about them and um, I'm just thinking that, hey, every, everybody does it. It is a little tacky at, at times, especially if you don't actually mean what you say you mean. Um, but I, I'm not gonna begrudge somebody. I, I have a, an anti-zombie sticker in my car and I guess that's saying something about me. Um, hey, I've seen whole vehicles that are zombie response vehicles taped all the way yeah. down and painted on them, but... You know, I, I guess that's a very safe one since, you know, they're not really going <laughs> to deal with it. Is, is that part of it too here? Because look, I, I we had a guy down here on the corner across from the shopping center down here. He he was selling flags and he was selling Trump flags and he was selling rainbow flags and he was selling one love flags. And he was he sells all of them. And he's like, well, I don't care. They all they're all the same price, 20 bucks a flag. And that was his take on it. But that's not the internet take when we move this into the social media realm and, and my thing lately has always been you're a columnist which means you're an observer of humanity because that's what you got to be to be a columnist yes the thing about it i think we just need to add social media to money power and alcohol it just reveals whatever you already are and it takes the barrier down right that's what social media you know people think they're bulletproof when they smash sin when you start putting this part of it to it the virtual signaling stuff or worse, you get really offended at somebody else's virtue signaling that may or may not just be an innocent thing that they're just doing to feel good about themselves. This gets to be a toxic mix pretty quick, doesn't it? And it's not because social media is bad. It's because we're making it that way. I think social media is whatever you want to make it out to be. So I on Twitter, my rule is this, and my Twitter thing is at Krista Caver, my name, pretty easy, is that if somebody is really rude to me, I mean, not just disagreeing, but just being nasty or hateful, they automatically get muted and I don't respond to them. In the meanwhile, I only follow people that I respect. A lot of journalists, I, I follow you, I follow uh, people who have interesting opinions. I also follow a lot of scientists and a lot of 
bird photographers and people who photograph spiders because I, I like wildlife. I think it depends, you know, who, who you like, who you want, the communities you want to be part of, you can be on Twitter. So my Twitter experience is about 99% positive because I only correspond with people that I like. And I'm also a little contrarian in the sense that I send people compliments all the time, like, you know, that looks good, or I like your photo, or cool spider, or nice article. And I, I think you can be a, I, it sounds like a bumper sticker, but you can be a force for good on Twitter. Yeah, that's why we started doing the supper club thing with the food is like, because I don't have to check your handle, and I don't have to check your bio before I like your food picture. So just put a food picture yeah. on there, send it out. I don't have to go through your bio. I don't have to worry about, you know, that one's safe for me. And because and a bunch love- of us to. Yeah, a bunch of us that started that, like we talk politics all day. I need a happy place on my Twitter feed somewhere. So let's throw food. And it blew up like it's way bigger than I thought. That's exactly why we did that, because I don't have to check. I don't I don't have to see what your political views are. Oh, that's a that's a good looking plate of ribs. That's a good looking bowl of ramen. I like it. Yeah, I think, you know, and I like to uh, pickle and can stuff. I like to make jam. Um, I like to put those pictures up there. And I, I think. There are people out there who are 100% all political all the time. I would say even as a columnist and somebody who, who, who does some political stuff, I run for office and whatnot, but it's only about a tenth of who I am. I'm all about food, travel, animals. Um, I like meeting people. I like meeting people on the left or the right and hearing about their stories. I heard an interview of, with you, um, and I, one of the things that I took away from that is that it's your family Sometimes when your family gets together, you guys sing hymns. It's a very small thing, but I just thought it was so delightful. And then also that you like game meat, same as me. I think there's just a lot of cool people out there that I enjoy staying in touch with, even though I don't know them personally. Yep. Almost deer season. I'm going to get my bag of jerky here in about eh, about seven, eight weeks here. Can't wait. Um Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. When you're talking about virtue signaling, if you know who you are, it makes it a lot easier to get your points across because people want real. Like, you know, you're a columnist, you're a public figure, you've done, you know, congressional staffing. So you've done like statistical analysis. People want real. And what something that's happening online is folks are figuring out really quick who's real and who's not. But that's a two edged sword because with this virtue signaling stuff is you can also reveal that you're not real in a really big hurry when you don't actually mean to. I don't know that that's really a fixable thing because that's an individual thing. That's a First Amendment thing where that changes. And this is where you get into it in your pieces. That's you and me and Joe Schmo and, and you know, buddy up Cabin Creek and whoever talking about it. And, you know, the, the crazy pothead and Parker can say whatever they want to say out in Colorado. Right. When the government starts doing it, though, 
and a government official or an elected official or an unelected bureaucrat for that matter, and they start putting the power and force of government behind something like that, though, it changes into a very different thing, though, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I highlighted a couple of things in that piece where uh, we first was a, and I say this, I'm basically a right-leaning uh, columnist at a very, at a left-leaning paper. Um, I'm kind of like the Ross Dutot and the, the George Will only out here in the middle of flyover country. And I, I tend to poke, poke fun at both sides. Cause I think, you know, any, at any given point, someone is doing something stupid somewhere. And sometimes they're Republicans, sometimes they're Democrats, sometimes they're independent. A lot of the, you know, <laughs> green party, libertarian, whatever. And so I picked out a couple of different examples of lawmakers here in the vicinity, both on the left and the right, who did things that will not hold up in court. I believe they did them to virtue signal, to show to their base, hey, I'm with you. And the first one was a conservative county commissioner decided that he was gonna go after a Pride Fest event that is held on a on the, the fairgrounds of a basically a conservative leaning county. Now, I'm not into Pride Fest, I don't go to them, I don't care. But because there was a wardrobe malfunction in a fake boob on a male performing as a female was shown, this lawmaker is using that as pretext to make sure that Pride Fest can't come back to the, the fairgrounds. And the same, uh, the same commissioner, he threatened to buy a big uh, park from an, an adjacent jurisdiction because that adjacent jurisdiction had put in place a concealed carry ban um, in parks. So, but, but, the, but the district can't even afford the property. So again, it's kind of threatening something that can't happen. And then we got a big left-leaning district out in Boulder that has decided there's no gun shows at county fairs. And that's not gonna hold up in court because you can't allow other kinds of buying and selling opportunities and not allow lawful gun sales on the same fairground. So I, I draw the line here because these are all sort of virtue signaling. They're telling their base, look, we're anti-guns or we're anti-pride fest. Whereas I'm thinking, how about you just get a bumper sticker and then spare us and spare your staff the time it's going to take to put this in and then to also try to hold it up in court because it's not going to hold up. So you're you're wasting taxpayer money. And it's not just wasting taxpayer money. This is something I've tried really hard to do since I started doing public writing and then later that led to media. A lot of what we talk about is virtue signaling or even, you know, ideological things, you know, the real hot button culture war stuff is to kind of turn the noise down on it and get into it and it's like, okay, is this really a problem or is this a vehicle somebody's using for power? And more often than not, if it's something really loud, like that gun show, like the pride events, like, you know, drag queen story hour on some state, you know, 2000 miles away, somebody going after a church during COVID, you can pick both sides are very bad at this. Whatever you're going to pick, almost without exception, if you dig and dig and dig enough, you end up coming to somebody who's basic, you know, when you really get down to it, they're just saying, I don't like this and I want the power to make it stop. That's not virtue signaling. That's abuse of power. Unless it's something criminal, in which case there's already a criminal code or morally wrong, in which case you have some civil options to go to court and try to stop it and argue your case. It's always when you strip it down and you get rid of the buzzwords and you get rid of all the nonsense and you get rid of people's feels to use the, the vernacular of the kids these days. 
it's really mostly going to be about somebody wanting power to make somebody else do something they don't really want to do, but they think they should be doing, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Virtue signaling becomes power, uh, abuse of power when lawmakers decide that they can foist their will on the rest of us. My thought is this, if you don't want to go to Pride Fest, don't go. Um, people, all the people who witnessed that, that uh, wardrobe malfunction were people who meant to be there. And yeah, they did bring their family with them. That is their choice. They have a choice to be able to go and they made that choice. I wouldn't make the same choice. And if you don't want to make that choice, don't make it. Same goes for gun shows. If you don't want to own a gun, if you don't want to go to a gun show, don't go. Uh, but don't begrudge a law-abiding person the opportunity to, to buy a firearm. And here's the funny thing is that when you look at statistics, the people who commit crimes generally don't buy their firearms from gun shows. Uh, this is Gun shows are where law-abiding people go to buy firearms. And same, same goes with the concealed carry ban in, in Denver area parks. People who own, who have a concealed carry permit are the least likely to commit crimes if you compare them to other people. So there, there is, a, you know, virtue signaling, everyone does it, but when you're doing it and enhancing your own power and really discriminating against other people in, you know, Douglas County is saying that, hey, if you want to have a festival of some kind, you can come to the, the counter, the county fairgrounds, unless you're gay and you're about gay pride, then you can't come. Um, Boulder County is saying, yeah, you can come here and have some kind of a big swap meet. You can sell, um, you know, rocks and gems, whatever you want to do. But if it's firearms, you can't sell it. And you, you just can't do those things. You cannot have viewpoint discrimination. You cannot use the power of government to force your viewpoint on other people. Krista Kafer, Denver Post columnist, joining us. The other side of that is because you've been on the other side of it. You've worked, you know, on the political side of it as a staffer and other things. When you have competing, let's call them stunts, because like we said, if, if you if you do something and you know it's not going to hold up in court, but it's going to be a year and a half or two years from now before it gets through court and it'll be after an election, looking at certain people right now, you know, that that's a stunt. But then you have competing stunts because there's going to be a reaction from whatever person you stunted or the side you stunted. They're going to react to that with another stunt. But on a practical level, especially on the local and state level, that makes doing coherent, consistent policy that we need to have normal everyday lives to have economic freedom, to have political consistency for people to have an environment of freedom. It makes that almost impossible, doesn't it? Because now the lawmakers are going to spend all their time stunting instead of trying to figure out ways to work together and make the, I know Pollyannis to say, well, they've got to work together. Well, if they're fighting, they're not, you know, it's the old mob thing. If you're on the mattresses, you ain't making money. If you're fighting each other, you ain't legislating stuff. And there's no way to have consistent policy, good, bad, or indifferent, if that's all you're doing. And I see that part accelerating and I see the legislative part falling by the wayside. I think you're right. So I, I was a congressional staffer in the late nineties. And then I worked for a big think tank in DC in the early 2000s. And what's interesting, I'm not saying there was no no political theater. I mean, political theater is, is age old, but politicians making big speeches, 
saying insulting things, provoking people, uh, you know, doing different things. It, it, that's just sort of stock and trade of, of political power. But there's definitely less of it. And what's interesting is that there's something, there's 13, 13 uh, spending bills. We managed, I mean, I say we, I was a staffer for a congressman, and we managed to pass all of them. The, all, you know, we never did omnibus bills. We actually managed to pass all of those those bills and people did work together a lot more. Yeah, there was, you know, there was tension, there was friction and people disagreed. But I would say the proportion of theater to actually working on things, the working on things was more than the theater. It feels like, and I'd have to quantify it if I were to, you know, call up a congressman's office or a congresswoman's office and say, how many of your staff members are actually working on real legislation versus uh, being provocative and getting yourself on Fox News? I don't know what that ratio is exactly, but the way it feels to me is that it's more theater, less action. I mean, you know, I remember the 90s. I'm old enough. 98 was my first election, the midterms. That's the Clinton impeachment election. So, yeah, there there was some mess going on. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, I remember that time period well. But it's in the, it's you mentioned it, though. What changed in the 90s was the rise of network news as we now know it. We started getting the Internet. We started having, you know, alternate media, um, things like Rush Limbaugh was at his peak in the late 90s, early 2000s. The Internet started changing it. Then it changed again in the mid 2000s with smartphones. It's changing again now because you have even more technology. Virtue signaling is one of those things that seems to fit the new media environment really, really well. Because you can go to that way faster and it fits into, you know, the, the characters on Twitter and you can get it on a TikTok real fast. It almost feels like something like virtue signaling, which is already an ingrained part of human nature. You can call it other things throughout human history, but it's always been there. This media environment, it's almost like it's tailor made for it. So observer of humanity that you are. What do you think is a more productive way for people to talk about it? Because calling out hypocrisy never works. If you take, you know, any kind of debate class ever, they'll just be like, you know, never address hypocrisy because you just end up in a circle. So calling out hypocrisy on virtue signaling is never going to work. And we're all doing it. So that's not going to work either. What's a more productive way to have this conversation, do you think? You know, it's hard to virtue signal face to face. Um, you know, it's something you put on your, your Twitter account, you put it on your car. But when you actually sit down and talk to people, people don't talk in slogans. They don't sort of um, push those things on each other. So I guess I would recommend more face-to-face -face conversations and also just having the discipline to say, I'm not going to follow people who are provocative. I'm not going to respond to people who are provocative. I have basically a no response uh, rule for myself that if somebody is nasty to me, I just mute them. I'm just done. Um, because what they want to do is they want to provoke me and then I'm supposed to provoke them and then they're supposed to provoke me again. And it's sort of like a tit for tat, you know, provoking and virtue signaling. I don't want to do any of that. It's a total waste of time. I'd rather waste my time on Wordle, frankly. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I'm going to waste my time, it should be on dog videos. It should not be on uh, trading tit for tat for some angry person. So for the most part, unless some, if somebody comes at me with a criticism of my column, or something I've tweeted that is reasonable, of course I'll interact with them. But if they're going to be nasty, then I, it's just automatic mute. And I, I think having both the discipline to be disciplined in our social media interactions, and then also just making the time to spend time with people. I, I have a lot of friends on the left, which surprises some folks because I've been uh, 
you know, a person of the sort of center right for a long time. And we don't talk about politics most of the time. We talk about food and travel and, you know, stuff that we like, animals. Basically, if you like dogs, I probably like you. Um, I have, you know, very rarely we'll meet somebody who likes dogs or horses that is not a likable person. But generally speaking, if you like animals, um, I'm there. I love food. I'll feed anyone. I'll eat anyone's food for the most part. I I love travel. I love to meet people from other countries. It's it's that kind of face-to-face -face interaction that that takes us away from virtue signaling and maybe just being virtuous. Yeah, and my rule is that I started doing was um, anything, unless it's somebody I really know well, I'll go along with them. You know, the third tweet is like a bar after midnight. Nothing good's going to happen after that third tweet usually. <laughs> things like that but one thing i've learned and i try to do on twitter and i try to keep a pretty positive timeline most of the time every now and then i'll i'll get wound up about something one of the most precious things you have is your time you you don't owe people that are bad faith actors your time and if you just kind of get that through your head on and facebook's even worse than this but i don't have facebook because i you know i like my family and i want to keep loving them so i don't have facebook because those two things <laughs> wouldn't go together but i do have twitter and one of the things about Twitter is, is I just learned, I was like, okay, I'm, there's certain things where I feel like I owe it to people to respond. Like, you know, if I write something that I know is hot or, you know, if I, if I'm on, you know, if I go on like Young Turks where I know I'm going to be getting mess because it's just built into the cake, um, things like that. And, you know, you, and everything's in my real name. So that keeps me accountable. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that part of it, but no, you, Nobody has a right to just make me get angry over their little thing that doesn't affect me one little bit. And I really God, wonder. Yeah. And I just I'm like, you know. I got four daughters and four dogs and I just I ain't got time for this mess. But the other part of it is and, and the long winded way to get to it is. It doesn't gain me a blessed thing to get upset on the Internet. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. That's really the virtue signal is that you can get angry online and get seal claps from your in-group and it's easy. And that's just as much a virtue signal as the bumper sticker or the flag or the t-shirt or the hat or whatever the other case is. That's where this stuff gets dangerous is when you start put, you know, not to be a pop psychologist here, but when you're, when you're purposely getting the negative reinforcement out of your virtue signaling, I think that's way more dangerous than just wearing the T-shirt of your candidate of choice or your cause of choice or a rainbow flag or a red Trump hat or whatever the case may be, because those aren't inherently negative, although I know they can be sometimes. That that need for that negative online is the one that I just say, no, nope, I'm not interacting with this anymore. It's it's it, there's no there's no good in it at all. I have to watch myself from getting the sort of the dopamine hit on likes like. You know, if I post a picture of some wildlife photography, I, you know, I find myself checking to see if anyone's liked it, right? Or if I make a clever statement or post a column and I'm looking for likes. And I, I just have to monitor myself to make sure that I'm not using that as my, so, my main source of dopamine 
It needs to be the people around me, it needs to be meaningful, significant activity online. And yeah, I mean, I would say that for the most part, it if social media, if you're disciplined about it, it can be a positive. I've connected with people. I sometimes sell things on Facebook Marketplace. And uh, you know, if somebody inherits a bunch of stuff, I don't want it, I'll I'll sell it for them for a commission. And I have met the nicest people that have come to my house. I've ended up like sending them home with plants because I'm a big gardener and I'll be like, take these plants, take them away. And so I find that it's been, social media has facilitated both Facebook and Twitter. I've met some really interesting people that I correspond with, but I just use the self-discipline. If somebody is nasty or inauthentic, I, I don't know who they are, if they actually are a real person, why should I interact with them? And like you, everything is under my own name. So my public Facebook page, my Twitter page, my uh, my Substack, my column, everything is under my name. I never send out any message that is not attached to my name. So if it would dishonor my name, it's not going out. Yeah, it's something I do too, because my kids are all old enough. They don't even have to have a Twitter account. They can just Google my name and my Twitter feeds first thing pops up. So keeps us all fair. Uh, Krista Kafer always, uh, love talking about this stuff because this stuff's important because you can talk about the politics and the policy stuff, but if you're not, you know, doing good stuff on your own line, none of that stuff matters because nobody's going to listen to you. Um, the dopamine hit of talking to good people though, cause I've, I've made some really important to me relationships just through the Twitter now over the last four years. And, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Chris Caper, thank you so much for the time today. We're going to definitely have you back. We're going to get you in the rotation. We need a, we need a Western correspondent, so that might be you <laughs> out there in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, until we see you on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can find you, where they can follow you, keep up with your work until we get you back. So Chris Caper, uh, Denver Post is one place you can get it. If, uh, if you want to, you're going to hit the paywall if you look for my stuff in there. If you don't want to pay it, you can also, I also retweet those or reprint those at my Substack which is anomalous take, like a weird take. It's anomalous. Um, and you can check me out there on my Substack. Follow me on Twitter. You know, you at least get some cool pictures of spiders and my dog. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. You're somebody I've, I've admired and I just enjoy the things that you tweet out. I love your love of food and I like learning more about West Virginia. So uh, the fact that you contacted me after just, thinking you were cool. I heard an interview with you, um, your, your story, um, how you got to where you are now. And I just found it really inspirational. And it, this is a good example of meeting somebody through an online presence that has, that, that, that's nice. Uh, you're too kind. Um, I will admit though, I, I'll confess it. If the timeline gets a little slow, I, I may or may not throw a dog pick on there just to make things pick up. That that, that <laughs> may I may not have full integrity when it comes to there's enough of them running around here, that's for sure. In fact, in fact, we gotta we gotta rescue. We're picking up Wednesday, so there's another one coming. God help us. But um thank you so much for that. That's very kind. And that but that's that's what we try to do. So I appreciate it. And that's what we try to do with this show, because we're the non-yelling show. We talk to everybody. So definitely we'll have you back, my friend. Um, the piece is in the Denver Post. We will link to it. Read the whole thing for yourself, like we always say. And we'll have you back again soon, Chris Kafer. Thank you so much for the time, man. Thank you. Yes, man. Thank you.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. It's morning as I record this. It's evening where he's at because he's down in New Zealand. Uh, we're really thrilled to have him. Adi Goldship is joining us. He is an economic commentator. He's got a great podcast, uh, the Economic Review Podcast. We'll talk some economics here in a minute with him. He's also a Young Voices contributor. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for the time. This evening for you, morning for us. I'm great. Good evening, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate it. Let's start here, though, because um, I always like having a wider perspective on these things, an outside perspective. You were writing in the counterpunch about immigration. Now, here's one of those things that when we talk about it all the time, this has become so much buzzwords and so much slogans and so much culture war and so much politics. People forget that immigration, your background's economics. This is actually a real nuts and bolts thing when you turn down all the noise on it. And as you started to highlight, the numbers are kind of startling when it comes to U.S. immigration. And let's just preface this. We're talking about legal immigration here, legal visa holders, legal green card holders. We're going to set the legal immigration southern border. We're going to set that to the side for just a second. These numbers are rather startling once I read through your piece and looked at them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the like you said, the the first thing that we have to remember is that you know behind all the the political rhetoric, immigration is a tool. You know, every every legislature around the world can can use immigration as a tool, and you know, a country like the United States is fortunate enough to have people from all over the world that want to come there and live there and work there. And so, of course, they have to have some sort of immigration policy, um, and it's up to them, it's up to the legislature, up to Congress to make sure that they use that as a tool in the most effective possible manner um, to, to improve the well-being, the lives of the people uh, of its own citizens. And currently, it's not doing that. And we just learned through the COVID shutdowns, when we had all the shutdowns, and of course, travel restrictions and things like that, one of the reasons these economic numbers don't make sense to people, because it doesn't make sense how you have a labor shortage and low unemployment both. There was an almost no immigration for almost two years and very little immigration. And it blew a hole into the labor market, especially the service sector labor market, where a lot of those folks enter the U.S. economy. We got data now that kind of a buildup on top of it. And you highlighted in your piece things weren't well before that. I, I almost fell over reading this and it takes a lot to shock me. You said if the barring extensive reform to immigration policy, it's on pace to take almost two centuries to complete the backlog on green card applications. Can that number even be right? And that was before COVID's just showing how bad this is. It was already like this. Is that right? You know, um, like you said, there's there's been a massive problem with COVID. Um, here in New Zealand, um, we have a similar problem. We have two um, for for every for every unemployed person, we have two job openings. So there's a, a massive problem with um, labor shortages, and especially in certain skilled professions like, um, you know, engineers, software developers, certain specialized STEM fields, especially, there's a massive, massive labor shortage. And the, the best bet that the U.S. has to fix that is immigration. Um, there's there's no way that they're going to be able to fill that with domestic um with domestic workers, just because enrollment rates, you know, especially programs like electrical engineering, they've been declining over the past two, two decades as demand has been soaring for people who are skilled in those sorts of professions. So that's the first thing. And the second thing you mentioned was the 196 year backlog. Um, so the the way the, the U.S. currently processes these um, H-1B uh, applications. So once you get your H-1B, your, your um, work visa, 
then you sort of get in line to get your green card. And depending on what country you're from, you go in sort of different brackets. So if you have, um, if you're a very high skilled employee, you have a master's degree or, you know, 10 years of work experience, something like that or more, you go into the EB2 category. If you don't have those sorts of skills, you go into the EB3 category. And that's where you get extremely long waiting times, especially if you're an unskilled, you know, and the way they define unskilled is just, you know, you don't have a master's degree. So you could have a bachelor's degree, you could be qualified in your field, but you'd still be unskilled to them. Um, and so those people were waiting, you know, 196 years to that's, that's at the current pace. It's absolutely absurd. Yeah. Let's do some of the nomenclature here, because one of the ways you get away from the buzzwords is this is legislative. There is black and white law involved here for folks that maybe aren't familiar. Let's just make sure everybody's on the same song sheet here. Talking high skill labor, STEM stuff, things like this. It's H1B visas. Just for folks, everybody knows what we're talking about. Explain the H1B visa program, because that's another one of those where it's become a buzz where people throw around. I'm not sure people really understand how it works. Yeah, it's confusing to understand if you haven't been through it yourself, um, just how convoluted the entire system is and, and how complicated it is. So the way most people come to the, the United States, if they want to work here, um, especially from places like India and China, they come here as students, um, you know, undergraduate or, or postgraduate. They come here, they, they get their degree. And after that, um, they're eligible to work in the United States through something called uh, OPT. And that gives them the ability to work for one to three years in the U.S. Once they get hired by an employer, they can sponsor them for what's called an H-1B visa. That's basically a, a work visa. So your visa is, as, is good as long as you're employed and your employer sponsors you. And eventually um, your H-1B visa, after you've been on it for a certain amount of time, um, depending on what country you're from, there's a delay between the time you get your work visa and the time you get your green card. Your green card is your permanent residency. So after that, you're no longer dependent on your employer. You can be fired. You can switch jobs freely. Um, your your visa status is no longer tied to your job. And so that's sort of the, the, the pipeline. And then after you've been on your green card for, I think it's five years, um, you become a citizen. Now, this is something that's controlled by Congress. You touch on it in your piece. Um, they set the levels on these things. The problem is we understand this is a hot button political issue. They should be adjusting it. We just had the census. So we know the data numbers. We just had COVID, like we said. We know there's economic holes to be filled here. But they're not adjusting these numbers as time goes on. And at least they're not adjusting them to keep up with the current situation economically as it exists on the ground. When you look at things like the census that you talked about, us not being able to fill these workers any other way. Look, economics, when you get down to it, it's a math discipline. There's some hard math here. We don't have enough workers for the size of the economy we need. We're not producing through the birth rate enough future workers. This is really a math problem when you get down to it. And then that needs to be the policy focus instead of the other way around where we're looking about is like, oh, well, we want U.S. jobs. That's a fine thing. But the math don't match up. Yeah, exactly. And at a certain point, you're you're not going to be able to domestically fill those jobs. There are just not enough people skilled in that profession in the United States. And, you know, the, the shortage is so, so severe that even if you start to push people into STEM careers, that's going to take decades before it materializes. And even even then, it's, you know, at, at the cr current trajectory, you could you could double them. You still wouldn't be able to keep up with China or or um you know, many of our, our foreign policy rivals. So there is there is absolutely an essential reason why you need immigration here. That's, that's um, you know, un undoubtable. And like you said, illegal immigration, that's a whole different story. But as far as legal immigration goes, Congress has that in its control and it hasn't adjusted those levels in literally decades. And, you know, the, the, the limit on how many H-1B visas can be issued every year, the, the limit on 
um, you know, the, the number of people that we let in, those haven't been adjusted in decades. Our population has increased significantly. Um, the, the, the number of jobs has increased significantly. All those sorts of things are increasing, and yet immigration just isn't keeping pace. You can't keep levels at 1990 levels and expect that everything will keep running smoothly. Yeah, and let's have an adult conversation about this real quick, because China is one of those things people want to bring up about, you know, that's a competitor. That's the economic competitor to us. China's workforce is 700 million people, just their workforce. Our entire population is 330 and change and growing. That disparity, we can make up some of that with technology and industrial might, but that's just the reality in the world right now. So the only way you're going to compete with that is better quality, more efficient workers and a more efficient economy, right? Because you're never going to beat those numbers out. And again, I hate to keep harping on it, but this is just the facts on the ground. Unless you bring in the best in the world, those worldwide, you know, the top talent, unless you're having an environment like that, you have no chance to compete with just the sheer numbers, do we? Well, the advantage that the, the U.S. has is that people from all over the world desperately want to move to the United States. That's not the case for China, right? Um, there's not millions of people waiting and, and working and, and doing everything they can to move to China. That's that's just not a situation that they're in. The United States has the ability to literally welcome in as many skilled workers as it wants from, from every corner of the world. And those are the types of people that are literally on the on the doorsteps, you know, banging on the doors that want to be let in. Um, and so, first of all, that's that's a huge advantage that the U.S. has that China doesn't. And even if we look at the numbers at a per capita level, like you can you can think about how China has you know four times the number of people as the United States, but on a per capita level, you know they're still producing more engineers by almost a factor of over two times. And so that's, the, the, I mean, you know, forget about the the population disparities for now. They're still they're still you know absolutely wrecking us or wrecking the U.S. on those metrics. Yeah, Adi Golcha joining us from New Zealand. Is that a better way that we should be discussing this in our media and our social media and our conversation with economics instead of the buzzwords, instead of the, the culture war side of this? Should we be talking about it in a, in a positive way like that? It's like, hey, we're still America. We are America. We're the city on the hill. Everybody wants to come here. Would that be, I know it's not a policy argument, but it's an effective argument. Is that a better selling point to bring folks into this discussion that way instead of the other way where it seems to be a dead end of just saying the same thing we've been saying for 20 or 30 years when it comes to immigration? I think there's sort of two things when when you think about immigration, right? There's there's the economic aspect to it. And I don't think the discussing the economic aspect um, as, as far as the media or, you know, as far as um, you know the the public discourse is concerned is particularly efficient, right? We can we can talk about how many STEM worker shortages, um, how how big that shortage is, how many immigrants we let in. We can use all this terminology and all this math, but ultimately that's not what people think about when they think about immigration. They think about well, we're going to let in you know a million people from China. What's that going to do to the culture? What's that going to do to my city? What's that going to do to my neighbors? What's that going to do to my school? You know, all, all those sorts of things are, are the first thing that, that people think about. They don't think about the economic impact. They think about the cultural impact because that's what affects them most closely in their day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, if you're you're someone who's lived in your neighborhood your entire life and you see the, the demographics literally changing and becoming, you know, more and more um, uh, uh, or being filled with a higher population of foreign-born people, that can, that can obviously, you know, not even if you're not, you know, racist or xenophobic or whatever, that can still sort of change the culture around you in a way that you're maybe not happy with. And so that's what people think of. Um, so it's it's important to stress here in the public discourse that, you know, even though the other side may seem far-fetched, the, the economic side may seem far-fetched, 
ultimately that's going to have a much bigger impact on you, even, even if you can't see it. Yeah. And how do we, we've talked about it on this program before we try to take a big picture approach to these things. Uh, how, how do we bridge that cognitive dissonance? Because you have people that say, you know, we want to compete with China. We want made in America. We want to bring back manufacturing, but they like their cheap stuff at Walmart and they like their cheap stuff off Amazon, but they never put the two things together and understand that, you know, Hey, economic, because it's a complicated thing to explain, you know, global supply chains and economics to folks. Although I think things like COVID people maybe have a little bit more of an awareness now of it, which is a good thing. How do we bridge that cognitive dissonance? Some people would call it hypocrisy of like, well, they want these cheap goods, but you're going to have to do business with China because that's the other major economic superpower. How do we start having that conversation in a productive way where people start putting two and two together in their everyday life, like you were saying? Well, there's there's sort of a, a well, going back to sort of economics, there's a comparative advantage factor here. And I think the first thing that I, I just want to stress is the, the we want American jobs um, there. That's not a zero sum game. When immigrants come here, they're not just they're not just workers. They're also consumers. So when an immigrant comes here, they need a house to live in and someone has to build that house. They their kids need to go to school. So someone needs to be a teacher and someone needs to build a school and someone needs to build a classroom. So when they come here we can't just look at one side and say, well, look, they took up a job. They're also consuming and, and working and doing all these things and, and producing value on the other side that creates more jobs. And there was a book out from Professor Leah Boston at Princeton University just um, a, a few few weeks ago that talked about this. Immigrants create more jobs than they than the one single job that they take up. So first of all, that that we want American jobs and that's why we want to keep out immigrants. That that argument just falls apart as, as soon as you you look beyond the surface. Um, and then there's, there's this sort of, um, other, other side to it is the, the, we want cheap goods from China, that sort of thing. Well, that, then there's a comparative advantage, right? The reason that Chinese goods are cheaper is because labor is cheaper in China. And so ultimately if you're going to, as long as labor is cheaper in China, goods are going to keep coming from there. And ultimately, you know, if China, uh, keeps on getting a more and more skilled workforce, ultimately they're not going to have that comparative advantage and it'll be somewhere else in the world that has cheap labor. There's plenty of countries in the world and China may not, maybe the manufacturing hub of today, maybe Africa tomorrow, maybe somewhere else the day after. And so it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to lose access to cheap goods. It's just China has been for the past few decades where labor has been the most lucrative for companies in America, mostly. Yeah, Adi Gulch joining us. We're going to talk about those labor markets. We're going to talk a little bit more about China coming up. We're talking immigration with our friend from Young Voices. Uh, some real nuts and bolts economic stuff that affects us day to day. More with Adi Gulch as her tale continues right after this. Uh, welcome back. We're with our friend Adi Golcha. He's down in New Zealand, but we're talking immigration right here in America because that is a worldwide global issue, believe it or not. We were just talking labor markets a little bit. Um, we've been talking about China. We're going to get to China in a minute, too, because you've been doing some writing about them. Things don't always stay the same. So even though China's got all kinds of advantages, we've talked about their population advantage. Of course, we understand their dictatorial system of government. They have control over that workforce that gives them an advantage in some respects. There are other countries, uh, sometime they're projecting maybe as early as next year, India is going to surpass them in population. That's more of a friendly country. 
you mentioned them specifically in some of these HP one visas that like folks from India, uh, engineers, folks like this, high strung, that there's people on the waiting list now that may die before they get their paperwork approved to come to the country. That not only seems like bad policy, it also seems a little bit unfair. And if we're going to compete with an adversary like China, don't we want to have immigration towards friends like India and maybe work with them and be like, hey, these are friends and allies. They can help us compete with China. We should be lowering barriers, not increasing barriers here. Would that make sense? But that's not how the policy is, is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the U.S. is shooting itself in the foot. You know, as, as soon as you start to look at the numbers, it's mind boggling, right? Nothing makes sense in terms of how Congress has handled this issue. It's all driven by political rhetoric. None of this is based on the math. And it, it, it doesn't make sense to make someone wait, um, you know, 200 years or something for to, to move from their H-1B to their green card. Not only does it wreak havoc on that that one individual's life. It discourages people, um, you know, current students in India, you know, they their best and brightest talent um, is gonna look over and say, well, do I really wanna put myself through decades of, of you know, uncertainty in trying to get a green card someday and, and always be faced with the risk that someday, you know, I might lose my job and then I'm just gonna be deported back here and, and have to start over from square one. Or what if, you know, Canada, uh, your neighbor to the North, they're significantly more friendly, you go there, you, I think it takes three to five years and you be, you become a, a permanent resident there. They don't make you go through any of these hurdles. They have a simple point-based system. And as long as you meet the criteria, you get your, your um, well, their equivalent of a, of a green card. And so, you know, you want the best talent in the world, you know, in Europe, in Africa, in, in Asia, looking over and saying, well, there's all these countries in the world. There's the UK, there's Canada, there's Australia, there's New Zealand. Why why would they pick the United States if they make it this much more difficult? It's it's bad policy. Yeah, you're down in New Zealand. So just compare it and contrast it for folks, because I, I happen to have a real good friend that actually married somebody in Australia. They work in Australia. The the requirements to get a work permit in Australia, New Zealand are just they're crazy. They are very, very strict. On This is very high skilled labor. He's in the medical field. You know, he does six months on six months off because that's how his paperwork's written. You know, just compare and contrast, because I think we sometimes get in our whole of America and we don't understand in the other world. Australia, New Zealand have some of the strictest regulations in the world when it comes to immigration. Just compare and contrast it just to give us an outside perspective real quick. Yeah, well, the the way that um, immigration works in Australia and New Zealand, and um, you know, I can especially say for New Zealand, uh, I'm relatively familiar with the way the system works, is that it's a point based system. So if you want to move here, they they add up points for different things. If you studied here, you get a certain number of points. If you've been living here for three years, you get a certain number of points. If you're a young worker, you get a, you know a certain number of points, and then all those points add up for all these different desirable factors. You know where you live gives you a certain number of points. What your salary is gives you a certain number of points, and if if based on your point total, if you're determined to be um, you know above the the line where we view you as a desirable candidate, then you get your visa. Um, you you can get your your permanent residence and eventually your citizenship here. Um, it's a little bit different in the U.S. You the, the way you guys do it, there's a strict cap on countries, right? So it it, it doesn't really there's no sort of point based system. It's just every year, no more than seven percent of the H-1B visas can go to any one country. So China and India have the same number of H-1B visa slots as Iceland, right? It, or or New Zealand. We China might have you know two thousand times our population, but they get the same number of H-1B visa slots. Um, and it, it just makes no sense. Um, 
you know, so I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that the, the point-based system is perfect. It's, it obviously isn't. Like you said, Australia and New Zealand have very, very strict requirements um, in terms of who we, we count as being qualified um, and meeting that point threshold. And maybe that's not at the right level, right? Um, there's, there's a whole different debate to be had there. But, you know, at, at the very least, um, it, it doesn't have the, that sort of element to it where small countries and big countries all are lumped into sort of their own set of slots. Yeah. And if you're worried about geopolitics, we understand the humanitarian situation in China. We understand their human rights abuses. Why in the world would you, again, just to use the example, because they're, you know, comparable in size now, it, why an ally like India, who's been a long-term ally, who's been a friend to America, who has a long-standing immigration system coming to America that's well known, why in the world would you give them the same footing when one is adversarial and one of them is a, is a developing economy that we have, and we have spent a lot of foreign aid money going to them as well. It just makes no sense geopolitically, let alone economically. Well, yeah, um, the that's that's one of the things that I've I've always found most puzzling, and that's this is not in, in no way exclusive to the United States. You know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they all sort of have this this intrinsic problem with their immigration system is that they they don't differentiate between where people are coming from um, in terms of requirements, right? So another aspect to this might be. Uh, how employers view um, education. So uh, US-based employers might view, you know, if you're coming from the UK, they might see a, a UK university and think, okay, well, that's, uh, I'm going to accept this qualification. They may not think the same for India, and they may think even less of Chinese qualifications or the other way around. And, and we, we're just not differentiating based on on what countries these people are coming from, um, the requirements that we're setting for them. Um, and so there's obviously those those sorts of factors, right? Um, and, and we we have the the U.S. Congress specifically has the ability to use immigration as a foreign policy tool. Um, it, it just it, it not only has it not taken advantage of that; it's doing exactly the opposite. It's just leveling the playing field. It's it's lazy, honestly. Yeah, and you touched on it in your piece. Um, also, the folks that are more concerned with immigration that's bad, illegal immigration overstayed visas is a problem, things like this. Well, one of the ways you fix that, though, is to get the legal immigration side of it, the house in order. You talked about things like the Dreamers. You talk about the HB1 backlog. Those things all make illegal immigration worse because they gum up the system and then people start trying to find ways around it and so on and so forth. It really is a self-defeating thing to have bad immigration policy, especially if you're one of those folks that are saying, hey, we, we only want legal immigration. Well, the first step in that is to have coherent and consistent legal immigration policy, isn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I I don't think, um, I just want to preface this by saying that I, I don't think that um, the fact that any, any country has a uh, poorly thought out immigration policy is um, a justification for someone just saying, well, to hell with it, I'm just going to, going to, you know, not worry about the the immigration system and just go there illegally, um, go there as a tourist and just overstay my visa. I, I don't think it, it is a justification um, that, you know, if you don't like a country's immigration policy, you're just going to go there illegally. That's that's a whole, whole different situation. Um, but as far as um, making the problem of illegal immigration worse, well, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we often hear get in line um, to illegal immigration, to illegal immigrants, right? You have politicians say, well, if you want to come here legally, get in line. Well, the first step to that, you got to give them a line to get in. Absolutely. The line to get in is the problem. I, I hate to go back to the language of it, but I have to because the way folk, 
There's got to be a better way to discuss this, doesn't it? Is it a nomenclature problem? I know we do illegal immigration, legal immigration. The visa system's kind of unwieldy to get into a social media conversation by a normal person. I, I know you're an economist by trade. What's the better way to talk about this? Is it the human factor of it? Is it the political factor? Is it the economics of like, hey, we need more people to have a bigger economy and, you know, rise all boats, that kind of an argument. What's a better way to talk about this? You know, not for the professional pundits, the normal people when they're just discussing this on Facebook or Twitter or with their families or whatever. There's got to be a better way to talk about this, there, doesn't it? Well, I, I think the first first step is there's a lot of myths. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of empty rhetoric. Um, you know, immigrants are going to come here. They're going to take your jobs. Um, you know, they're going to change the American identity, the American ethos. Um, they're going to bring their culture, their values, their religion, all, all those sorts of things um, here. And it's going to change your your culture. It's going to change your society. And maybe if you're someone who's been born and raised in America, that's something that might scare you. Um, and so firstly, there's there's those sorts of myths um, that that are have become all too pervasive in the immigration conversation. But like you said, I'm I'm not sure there is one particular way that you can start talking about immigration that, that changes the whole conversation and that makes someone who was previously so scared of immigration suddenly open to immigration. You know, that's that's one of the things with a lot of political topics is that people believe what they believe and they're they're firm in what they believe and to and to change that often requires, you know, it's a, it's a slow progression. So I, I don't think there's any instant immediate fix in terms of how we talk about this. It's just all of those myths that have been clogging up this conversation for so many decades have to start unraveling. And the only way to do that is to look at the numbers. You know, we need a speech from, you know, Joe Biden or whoever the president or the leader uh, of this in Congress is to, to say, hey, here are the numbers. It's undeniable. And, you know, that's, I think, the, the most straightforward way to get through. I think you bring up an important point because immigration is like a lot of other complex issues is part of the problem. And the reason it perpetuates to be a problem is somebody will want to fix one little piece of it. So they'll want to fix, you know, the Southern border or they'll want to fix the visa system or they'll want to talk about whatever else. And they'll just want to fix that one part of the problem is. And when you have a complex problem, it really does need to be an all of the above more than a just this one thing, kind of an answer in most cases. Is that how you look at the immigration problem with America is that there's so many facets to this is there, there is no one fix and there's no one conversation and there's not going to be any one election or two elections that fixes this. This has got to be an all of the above concerted, probably a generational type effort to fix, isn't it? Um, I, I'm not sure that it, it does, because the the first thing that, that that does is make anything exponentially more difficult to pass. You know, bills are hard enough to pass in Congress as it is. And so I, I, I think that the going for sort of this one, um, you know, one massive bill that fixes all the issues with immigration, I, I don't think 
you know, based on the current climate, that's that's going to get anywhere. There's there's going to there there's no way they're going to have the votes to to break the filibuster for that. Um, the only other thing um, that I mean, incremental reforms are possible here. Um, you know, the for example, with the STEM worker shortage, one of the proposed um, pieces of legislation in this year's um, defense bill was that we remove the cap for um, skill high skilled STEM workers, um, and so we we take away that 10, 20, 50 year waiting period for skilled STEM workers from India and China because we need them and we want to attract more of them. And so let's stop making it more difficult for them. That was an incremental gain. It didn't fix all the all the issues that, with immigration, but you know, it was a small reform. It had a decent chance of being passed. Um, and so I think, yeah, you know, maybe maybe that's, that's a broader conversation that we need to have as to why it's so hard to get bills through Congress. Um, but insofar as um, just this issue is concerned, I think our, our best friend here is incremental gains, not going for that one 5,000-page bill that's going to fix everything. No, I agree, because those 5,000-page bills are usually 4,000 pages of really bad stuff to get to the 1,000 <laughs> pages that you need. To be clear, though, this isn't just STEM stuff. I know we're hitting the STEM stuff because that's kind of the obvious one, and that's what the H-1B is kind of designed for. Things like doctors, medical professionals, where they come to this country and we basically make them start from zero after, you know, 12, 14, 15 years of training, things like that. Does America, I think we have this, put your economist hat on for a second. We still talk in our politics. Joe Biden did it this week. He talks about, well, we're going to bring back manufacturing. We're not a manufacturing economy anymore. We're a service sector economy. Is part of it America doesn't understand their own economy right now. Maybe we still think of the economy as it was in the past and not as it is in the year of our Lord 2022. Is that part of the problem here too? And then we project that on something like immigration and those culture things you talk about, and it doesn't match up because it's not an updated version of what's really going on right now. Is that part of the problem here too? Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's part of the problem when you have a president give a speech, you know, and this is, this isn't, this isn't a Joe Biden thing. This is something Donald Trump would do as well. You go to a, a manufacturing town and say, well, we're going to bring back all the manufacturing jobs here and we're going to bring back the coal mining jobs here. Well, the only way the government can do that is by incentivizing it. And I don't think that's, that's the right path for any government to go down where it's looking at, you know, uh, an industry is getting more efficient. It's becoming, you know, it's cutting costs. It's becoming better for consumers. It's innovating. And you go to them and you give them an incentive to, to basically, you know, crush all the progress that they've made, crush all the advancements and say, well, we're going to do it the old way because the old way meant that you get, you know, more workers. There's, there's been countless innovations like this, right? Um, we had text-to-speech software that replaced a lot of typists. It, it wouldn't make sense for the government to say, well, every time you fire a typist and you decide to use text-to-speech software, we're going to fine you so much that it doesn't make sense for you to use text-to-speech software anymore. You, you have to use a typist. Well, I mean, yeah, for it, it might fix the problem in the short term. You're, some typists might keep their jobs, but in the long term, that's that's not the direction you want to go in where the government is picking and choosing what jobs it wants to keep. Yeah, no, and you don't have to convince me. I'm a West Virginian. I know the coal mines were over before most other people did. They they knew. Everybody always asks me, it's like, what are the coal miners? They're like, no, they knew they knew 50 years before the rest of the country that it was over. Just you don't have to tell them. Uh, Adi Goldshow, outstanding stuff. We're going to link to all of this. His full piece on this immigration problem is in Counterpunch. We're going to link to it. Read the whole thing for yourself. A lot of good linked data points in there you need to read through. Uh, we're going to have you back again because you've also been writing about China. We'll get to that some other time. Let folks know until we see you on Hertel again where they can follow you, what you have going on, how they can keep up with you, my friend. Well, um, the best place to follow me is on Instagram um, at Economics Review. Um, that's, that's my podcast and on Twitter at Adi Culture.
Yep, and we'll link to all his pages. He's also on the Young Voices pages. He's an AA, so he's the very first one because it's alphabetical. So he's real easy to find. Uh, great podcast. Make sure you check that out as well. Adi Goldschutz, thank you so much for the time, sir. Great information. Enjoyed talking to you. We'll do it again real, real soon, my friend. Thanks so much, Andrew. Looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hard Tell. Okay, she was literally the very first guest we ever had when we went to the Daily Radio program. She was the first guest we ever had. Been way too long. We've got her back. Jenny Coulter, how are you, my friend? I'm doing just great, and I am so flattered that you actually wanted me to come back. Nonsense. You're one of the best. Uh, she does election stuff. She does it inside and out. She's also just a really, really talented writer and a really good friend, and we're always happy to talk to you. Um, unfortunately, it's that time of the year again, so more elections. <laughs> Did we learn anything? I know we talked about things like election security. I know that got abused in a lot of ways. I know it didn't get talked about in some ways that it needed to. 2020 to now, and we're getting ready to go to the boost. You know, early voting will be starting here real soon in a lot of places. Have we actually learned anything, do you think? Okay, from a strictly technical perspective, yes. One of the things that um, CISA, which is the Center for um, Internet Security, et cetera, uh, the federal agency, they actually gave the election community a considerable amount of kudos because there have been far fewer data breaches and ransomware attacks than there were even two or three years ago. So the election community has taken their um, security suggestions to heart. A lot of places now actually have a cybersecurity or at least a better IT department. And I think things are moving in the right direction. Are they perfect? No, but they're getting better. Now, when you say better, though, like you just said, there's layers to this. There's the security part of it. There's the technical side of it. There's how the election, you know, people think elections, you really know the nuts and bolts of how it gets done, how it's managed, how it's handled. That's not the part that people talk about because they just want to talk about the results and that part of it. You've mentioned, you know, on the ground, the nuts and bolts stuff that's going really well. How about that discourse side of it? Is there things that we need to do to talk about it more? Because like you said, you know, the, things are better. You don't really hear that in the media or social media all that much. So should we do a little bit better job with the discourse surrounding elections? Do you think then? I certainly don't think that would hurt. Now, one of the things I said, security was getting better from a technical perspective. From a chain of custody perspective, there have been multiple uh, high profile incidents that shall be that shall live in infamy and there were pieces of equipment systems that were accessed without proper authorization and in some cases 
Nobody knew where that equipment went for days, weeks, or in some cases, months. That's a problem because you have to be able to trust the machines or the systems you're using. And if it's just been out of sight for six months and you get it back, I don't care how many inspections you do, I'm still gonna be paranoid that there's a rootkit in there somewhere. Yeah, and talk about that for a minute um, because this is like if you watch a crime show, they talk about chain of custody for evidence. They've got to know where these machines are at all the times. They got to know everybody that does and doesn't touch them. I know we've got investigations going on in Georgia now where we've got it on video, people basically tampering with stuff. We have things in other places, Arizona, where they talk about these machines, people that aren't authorized to touch them on a practical level without getting into all the, you know, the nomenclature of it. Why is it such a big deal, that chain of custody? Because like you said, you don't trust it. But what would really happen if people, and I'm not talking about the cranks and the crazies, if most of the voters started questioning where their votes were going because the machines had been tampered with? The damage it does to voter confidence is incalculable. And again, you don't know, if you don't know what has happened to your machine, if you do not know where it is at all times, or at least how well this, how well it's been secured, it's going to cause doubt in the entire process. And that's a justifiable doubt. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether or not you found something. That's great if you did. However, the way that certain people went about it with the breaks in the chain of custody and the complete and total lack of legal accountability and responsibility for the equipment, that's what the problem is. Yeah. And the key word there was justified. So let's just go right there. What is a justified concern? Because we have the the crazy theorist. We have the people who know nothing about elections, doing election audits, which we'll get into that in a minute. But what would be a justifiable concern, not just, oh, I saw somebody move a box on a grainy video. What would be something that folks would need to look into? Any form of unauthorized access or access after hours, anybody who does not have access privileges suddenly accessing something, um, the principle of least privilege is certainly a very important part of elections. There's certain, you know, you need some things like separation of duties. You don't want one or two people in total control of the machines without an extremely well-defined chain of custody document. Yeah. And the part of this too, Jenny called to join us. The thing that really um, confuses folks too is there's only so many election experts so how many people, when you're doing this at a polling place or between polling places where these machines get, you know, collected either by the state or the local authorities or whoever's watching them, talk to people about this part of it. How many people are actually professional election people? How many are like state and local officials? And how many people are just volunteers that are doing it like a poll worker or somebody who's tasked to do this, who's just a volunteer? Um, there's about um, 10,000 unique election jurisdictions so let's say about 10,000 election officials, and then um, let's ballpark maybe 30, 40,000 for staff. The remainder would be volunteer poll workers. And sometimes they're state or county employees. You know, if you're, if you're short on poll workers, you can always commandeer people from the local government. So that would be about, oh, maybe 1.1, 1.2 million. So the vast majority of election security, at least on election day, falls to the poll workers who are tasked with conducting the election. But that that number is just blowing me away because we're talking about 154 million people voted in 2020. 
and there's about 260 odd million who are registered to vote. You know, so, you know, my math's not super great, but that's, you know, low 60s on vote on turnout. And you're talking about 10,000 people really controlling the results of all of that. That, that. That's a staggering ratio to people to hear the numbers that way. But that's how this works. Well, I mean, the poll worker to voter ratios, it's I always like to point out there are a lot more of you than there are of us. We apologize for the line. But if you were at a restaurant or Disneyland, you wouldn't be complaining. It's only when you're it's only on Election Day that this suddenly becomes an issue. Yeah, and Disney World has 80,000 people just for comparison there. Uh-huh. And their own police department. And their own police department and their own fire department and their own production staff and their own everything else. Is is that something that should be looked at? Is the volunteer system holding up or is it adequate, antiquated? Is the way we're using volunteers and kind of a slapdash different way of getting poll workers? We know the folks are dedicated. We know they do good work when they do it. Is it just getting too big for them? That's kind of the accusation that gets thrown at them is like, look, you know, we're, we're creeping up on 160 million voters. We're going to need more than, you know, 10,000 volunteers here. What, what do we say to folks that's like this whole thing, we need a different system or do we just need a better system? Elections would collapse without the extremely dedicated service of American poll workers. I mean, literally. Without them, there are no elections simply because there are not enough qualified people to go around. And a good poll worker, quite honestly, there are some who are better than a lot of election officials. So as long as you retain your good election workers, I mean, things can actually, things go pretty well. I mean, certainly everybody ages and certain processes that might have been in vogue one year aren't from one year to another. But overall, I think most poll workers do a good job. I do wish that there was some form of accountability for when there's a mistake that's made that is so egregious it makes the six o'clock news, but not necessarily in a punitive manner, just a, look, you did this, you messed up, please don't ever do this again, and let's move forward. And that brings it to us is like, okay, you said these things need accountability. We're big on accountability. Who is holding these things accountable? Not internet sleuths watching the grainy video, not not that stuff, but in a good system where things are running well, where the mistakes are just honest mistakes. Somebody just, you know, you know, stuff happens. These things are complicated. There's a lot of people, chaos, things happen. There's processes for these things happen. Talk about the accountability that is built into the system when it's running correctly, because there is layers and there is ways to fix mistakes and there is a right and wrong way to do this stuff, right? Yes, there is. And ultimately, accountability stops with the voters. I am 100% accountable to the voters of my jurisdiction. And if I mess up, I may have something I did may have caused a problem for them. That's not okay. So I try to make sure that every time I'm processing a voter that I have exhausted every possible avenue of being able to help them. And believe me, that has involved some very, very long phone calls. I think that for the most part, poll workers do a great job. I think there are some, let's face it, insider threats are a thing, and they've becoming they're be- it's becoming more and more of an issue. I think particularly this year. So I think that you, especially for senior poll workers, you want to keep an eye on 
who your people are and you want to make sure that they're not accessing anything that they shouldn't be accessing and that they are following all the rules in accordance with the laws of the jurisdiction. Yeah, Jenny Coulter joining us. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We're going to talk about that insider stuff because she doesn't just talk about this as an analysis. She has spent many, many a day in the polls, running the polls. She's going to take us inside of it, how that works, and some of her concerns for these upcoming midterm elections in 2022. One of our great friends, and we're going to continue with her right after this. More election stuff with her as her tell continues. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Our good friend, Jenny Coulter. Love having her. An election expert, both theory, both advocating. She also actually runs polling places, so she knows how these things work. Let's go there. Take us inside the polling place, because like you said, the insider part of this is becoming a problem. We see the news headline in Georgia now where they're investigating, where they've, you know, they got video now where election officials let people into the rooms where they shouldn't have been and people were able to fiddle with things. We just said it. There's a volunteer process here. They kind of take who they can get to try to run these things. There is untoward folks that are looking to abuse and take advantage of that, isn't there? I think so. But one of the things that with a lot of the um, insider threats, they don't believe that they're the threat. And for the most part, they did their jobs pretty well. It's just something caused them to lose faith in the process. and they may or may not have been talking to people and somebody said something that they had enough working knowledge of to be able to go, wait, that makes sense. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're not, but that's kind of beside the point. They believe they're actually trying to save democracy. They're not openly trying to subvert it, even if that's what their actions wind up doing. Yeah. But here's the problem. The rules are the rules. Yes, they are. So <laughs> how do you hand, you know, you're a poll, you're in charge of a polling place and you wind up with one of these people who, you know, maybe they legitimately think there's an issue where there isn't one. You've still got rules to enforce. Um, this is kind of this is kind of unprecedented for a lot of people because they've just never occurred to them that there would be a problem in a polling place like this. What do you do? You're in charge of the poll worker. You run into one of these individuals. They start demanding to see something or they want an accounting or something or they get on their cell phone with somebody, whatever the case may be that we've seen. How do you handle it? Well, there's different pr procedures for a poll worker versus a poll watcher. Poll watchers are election observers, in some cases um, appointed by political parties. Um, poll workers are the ones that are actually doing the grunt work. So with a poll watcher, you have to establish the rules up front and you have to, I mean, in my case, I do kind of establish dominance because the first thing I do is I ask to see their ID. And they always kind of look at me and I go, well, if my voters have to show an ID to vote and I had to show an ID to get appointed as a poll worker, then I don't think it's an unreasonable request. That usually puts them at ease somewhat because it, I'm somebody to be, to be taken seriously. And then you have to lay out the rules ahead of time. You are not allowed to speak with the voters. If you have any questions, please direct them to me. And if you're going to talk on your cell phone, please take the call outside. 
And if you keep the rules simple, generally people follow. And if they have a question, if it's a good faith question and you can answer it accurately, answer it. Treating everything like it's this shadowy secret cabal does not do anybody any favors. Now with poll workers, it's a little different because again, they are beholden to a set of laws which poll watchers are not. So you again have to establish your dominance and you have to make sure that everybody is clear on the rules, both at training and at the little, when you're swearing everybody into the oath right before the polling place opens. You know, you always do reminders. And if you see something going on that's, you know, you're kind of like, oh, wait, what are they doing? You very gently take them by the side and you go, look, I know you, I appreciate everything you're trying to do. However, what you're doing is going to cause a problem and it could potentially cost either the voter their vote or it could make us look really bad in front of an observer. Neither one of those is something we want to be dealing with. We do not want to be on the six o'clock news. So I'm going to politely ask if you would not do that in the future. Now that's in the polling places. People are concerned now because there are people who, um, whatever terminology you want to use, uh, conspiracy theorists, election deniers, whatever you want to say, there are people running who think the 2020 election was not on the up and up, that wasn't fair, that are now running for things like Secretary of State positions, like other positions, because every state's a little different, positions where they're going to have a say over the election process. How concerned should people be when you get somebody who uses that kind of rhetoric and they get in a position of elected power where they're over charge of these systems, either at a state level, local level, whatever the case may be? Is it a concern? How much damage can they really do and how much of it is just rhetoric and the system can kind of bulwark itself? Some of it depends heavily on the the surrounding power structures. Now, in Secretary of State, some Secretaries of State have, you know, like in the movie Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic power. Others, it's more of a ceremonial role. Just It just depends. But a Secretary of State that does not fulfill their duties can do an extreme amount of damage. I've seen it. I'm from California. We had one period in the mid-aughts where we were going through Secretaries of State like the band in the movie This Is Spinal Tap was going through drummers. I'm not kidding. So I've seen what a ineffective secretary of state can do. And the thing is, it's not an easy job. It's You're not just overseeing elections. You have to do things like, I mean, you're in charge of the archives, the state seal, business licensing. There's a lot of different duties that you're expected to perform. Elections are almost ancillary in a lot of ways. And if you cannot handle those other duties, you're not generally going to last too long as Secretary of State. Yeah, and we've seen things like the situation in Arizona. Um, Now we've got this investigation going on in Georgia. How much does it overshadow an upcoming, you know, we're still talking about the 2020 election now, and here we are getting ready to start doing voting in 2022. So, you know, two years worth of this now. And I imagine we're probably going to have some kind of mess out of this one way or the other that we either can or cannot predict. Why, why is there just some folks that no matter what they're, I get that you lose and you don't want to lose in this sort of thing, but the integrity of our election is just way too important to give into these folks, isn't it? Some people, no matter what, are just going to be hell bent on playing archeologist. There is nothing you're going to be able to do about those people. You, I mean, the best thing honestly to do is smile 
nod and be like, thank you very much. I will take this under advisement, but we have an election coming up now. So what did we learn from the prior election that we can apply to this one coming up in the future? The thing about that is I think that's a great way that you just put it. They want to be an archaeologist. You know, it, it's like the conspiracy. They always want to know the one thing nobody else knows and they're going to figure it out thing. Have we lost the communal aspect to elections here? I know it's adversarial. I know we want our team to win over the other team. I get all that part, too. Is there just a civic level of this? And you're in the polling places. So, you know, you tell me, but I by far I've had very positive experiences in my polling place with one exception. Um I think people just go there to do their civic duty. I I know that's, you know, cliche, but I really I I still see that a lot when I go to a polling place. Do you see that or do you see more and more divide when you see the, just the poll people coming to the polls filing by you in the polling place? The vast majority of the voters I encounter really do vote because it is a social aspect. It's like government is one of those it's just another word for one of those things we do together. That's the best way I can consider elections. I mean, it really is because, you know, you're voting with your friends, your neighbors, your family. It really becomes an event. Now, I don't get to partake in this. I have to vote by mail because obviously I'm at the polling place, but, you know, whatever. So I think that in certain areas, yes, voting does have more of a communal aspect. There are some areas where it's not. And I think sometimes those areas or places where there's been a really drastic change in a very short amount of time. I think that that's where things start to start simmering under the surface and eventually, hopefully not, but they do sometimes boil over. Yeah. And I mentioned, I wanted to ask you about this because we've talked about it before. Um, you were gracious enough to have me join you on a call about this. The one bad experience I've had at the polling in the last was because I had an accessibility issue. Um, I had just gotten out of the hospital I needed to use the ADA station because I needed to, it was the one place where you can sit down and vote. You don't stand and vote for that. Um, the poll worker just wasn't using their brain and they're like, you can't take a bag. And I finally pulled my shirt up. I'm like, it's a J tube. It's surgically attached. I cannot put this down, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But I bring that up because of this, there was a lot of things that was changed because of COVID and people can have their opinions about a lot of them. But one thing that it did do was we opened up a lot of accessibility to people that had not previously been there because now everybody's got an accessibility issue one way or the other. Right. How important is it for us to take good lessons from that COVID voting, which was chaotic, we know, but it also had some innovation to it and also had some accessibility stuff that kind of pushed the ball forward on things that have been problems anyway. Um, I know people have strong opinions on things like voting by mail and things like this, but we've seen it now. How much of that is actually also getting more people in, involved in the voting process and good parts that we need to keep from what we learned from that time period? Bottom line, voter turnout is up and it doesn't matter if you are affiliated politically or unaffiliated. People are voting. I think that's a good thing. I think that there were certain innovations that got introduced during that time period that, I mean, seriously, elections were done a huge solid. And I think one of the other things that it threw into sharp relief was the need for funding for elections offices. Uh, there's been, obviously, certain camps have been complaining that um, private enterprises were providing funds to election offices. And although, again, I realize that that can be perceived as a conflict of interest, I also realize election offices are horribly, horribly neglected when it comes to funding. And 
that should have been a wake-up call that maybe there needed to be a little bit more money in the general fund that went to election offices. Yeah, and for folks that don't know, because again, you've been a local poll worker for a long, long time. The actual setup, the teardown, because usually these are in, you know, schools or churches or a municipal building or places like this. Um, so it's not an overhead thing. But for folks that just don't know, how do an actual election, how does it get funded? How does the volunteers get set up? Just the mechanics of that. Just take people inside that for a minute. Because a lot of people just show up and vote and they know there's volunteers and they know, well, somebody had to prep the room, for lack of a better term. But explain that process for folks a little bit. Well, after the election is called and you go through the candidate, um, the signature verification petition processes and filing deadlines, the election office has the unenviable task of finding polling places. Nobody ever wants to be a polling place. You do not get compensated the amount that you can usually charge people. And it is basically like seating control of your facility to a very elaborate destination wedding with anywhere from oh, 600 to 5,000 people. And you have no control over anything and you have to, and you're not getting paid what you're, you're not getting paid what you would normally charge somebody. And you can't even access the facility because it has to be locked down because of election equipment. So I can, so finding polling places, there's a lot of places that we loved having as facilities and they just did not want us back. Yeah. My uh, polling place right now is actually the rec center that's attached to the elementary school. And it's, it's basically perfect because they kind of design it for things like that. So that works out well, but especially when you get into uh, in cities, in rural places where there's only so many buildings that you can run a couple hundred people through for a day. This is actually a really big issue that doesn't get talked about enough is like, look, there's only so, so many ways you can do an election and getting a building is kind of the base model of like, well, none of this other stuff works if we don't have a proper polling place. And then people don't really talk about it. No. And everybody always thinks because the polling places got closed, it was some nefarious pot. 99% of the time, it's just because they couldn't secure the facility. Yeah. Secure the facility, manning the facility. There's a lot of nuts and bolts to this. We talked about the lessons learned in the last few years. We know there's going to be untoward actors that are going to claim whatever they're going to claim about this one coming up. Give people one or two things to look for in the news coverage of the elections, not the results, not the horse race stuff, but how it's actually going. Um, if a if a result gets delayed, if something happens, what's some of the things you watch for in the headlines to know like, hey, there may be a problem here besides just counting votes as we go into the election season? First thing I look for is ballots behaving badly, aka ballots that have some sort of readability issue or errors, because a poorly printed ballot or a poorly designed ballot, well, you know what a hanging chat is. So ballot, so ballot issues are the first thing I'm going to be looking for. The second is if there were any technical issues or you had problems where the facility lost power. That happened to me in the last election. It was fun. There are poll workers who were 
did not receive the, the amount of training they needed and had issues with equipment operation. I'm definitely going to be looking out for incidents involving potential improper access or if so, or somebody calling trying to call in a threat. I do worry about the safety of everybody. I mean, for the most part, everybody's really nice, but you, you, I've I've had my share of people who were a little um, vehement, I, should, I suppose. And if there's a delay with the results, usually it's because one of the polling places had to go overtime because something wasn't adding up or they couldn't find something. And obviously you can't release results until everybody's brought them in. Yeah, Jenny called it. All right, this is a serious topic, but I want to end on a bit of a lighter note. I voted in my primary. And when I went to vote, I not only did not get my I voted sticker, which angered me greatly, they gave us you voted pins. Nice. And they were the I voted pins. I voted 2021. So not only did I not get my sticker, I wound up with a pin from the previous election. Validate my anger because this very much upset me. Dude, you wound up with a pin. I would not complain. I am an election pin freak. It's a pin from 10 to 20. It, I've got two now from 2021. At least give me a 2022 pin. Uh, you know, but it was bad enough. I didn't get my, I, I, just, I just want my sticker. Just give me my sticker. You know what? There's actually an organization called the Voter Sticker Project. And you might be able to tweet them and they can they can hook you up. All right. I had to do that. But I, I was like, what do you mean I don't get a sticker? And they're like, no, nah, here's a pin. I'm like, what is this pin stuff? But that goes to the, you know, there really is a civic ritual element to this. And I know it's silly about the stickers and people put them on their social media and people even make fun of people for putting them on their social media. But you get you get used to wanting stuff. See, she's got hers. right. I'm surprised you don't have a tattooed on, frankly. But um, hey, I probably gave you an idea. But but that, you know, as silly as that is, that that goes to show that this is a civic ritual and there is a connection to this stuff. And it is important to people, little things like that. Oh, running out of stickers, that can literally cause a riot in the polling place. It's, I mean, people get really testy. It's almost as bad as when Walmart uh, runs out of bags at the cash register, but we'll talk about that story some other time where I was work uh, I was working for a shipping company. They're like, we need you to bring a pallet of bags from one Walmart to another. We're like, we don't do that. And they're like, well, if you don't, there's going to be a riot. Like literally people were just throwing stuff in shopping carts and running out the doors. They're like, we got to get bags. So no stickers at the polling places is a bad thing. If you go to a polling place, make sure you get a poll worker as good as our friend Jenny Coulter. We love having you on to explain these things so good that even I can understand them. Uh, we love following you on social media. That's how we got to be friends. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on. Now that you got the swanky setup that you've got going on behind you there, let folks know what you've got going on until we get you back again. All right. So on Twitter, if you want to follow me personally, you can follow me at Election Babe. Or if you want to follow me on my official accounts, because I am the Senior Director of Stakeholder Relations for the OSET Institute and the Trust the Vote Project. And you can follow me there at Trust the Vote. And you can follow me at OSET, O-S-E-T. Yeah. And they've been doing really good work. Very interesting stuff, innovative stuff, uh, things that are coming up. Um, things like accessibility issues and other things. Make sure you're checking out their work. My friend, uh, you are our first guest. You are our first guest when we switch to the daily radio show. We're going to keep having you back because you do that good work, and we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, I had a wonderful time, Andrew, and thank you so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And may the magical ballot fairies be with you. <laughs> always, because it doesn't get done without them. <laughs>
<laughs> Talk soon. back to her tell okay i got corrected on something he's got a problem i said come on and tell me to my face actually we didn't say that i just said come talk to us because we like him he's a good guy he's returning to the show travis nix how are you sir good thank you so much for having me yeah he's uh at georgetown law good guy i've been on the program before all right let me set the stage with this so let me just tell you what i said and then we'll go from there but we we have the situation the new york attorney general Letitia james is suing Donald Trump and family. Now, we need to lay out a couple particulars here because she's the attorney general of the state of New York. This is a civil suit. Very important to this conversation. Part of what she said, though, um, in her very lengthy 45 minutes worth of announcements, um, and I'm reading, this is from Ari Mebler, a well-known reporter on legal affairs. I'm quoting his quote here, just to be clear. We'll link to all this. Y'all read it yourselves. Uh, The New York attorney general is citing former President Trump's unprecedented, which we can argue that some other time, invocation of the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself in crimes as part of the evidence suggesting he committed crimes and knows he did. That's part of a longer thread, but that was the part I was commenting on. This is my direct quote. I fully believe Trump has all sorts of dirty money and shading dealings. I'm content for an investigation to play out and investigate those things. But in this particular argument, however it is used and whoever it is used against, I don't like it. It's hot garbage. And the people, especially elected judicial leaders, need to stop using it. You replied to me about how you can do this in a civil suit. So before we go any further, you are correct, by the way. You can do this. It's not illegal. Why can you do this in a civil suit and break down the Fifth Amendment privilege for folks so they understand what we're talking about here? Yeah, so the Fifth Amendment right protects people from self-incrimination in criminal context only. So basically, if a cop arrests you and they want you to make a confession, you're allowed to assert your Fifth Amendment right and not talk to them, and you have a right to remain silent. But however, if you read the text of the Constitution, it's very clear that it only applies to criminal matters. And this has actually been litigated before the Supreme Court numerous times um, because people were trying to get it to also go to civil in the civil context when you're being deposed in a civil trial, which is what former President Trump was in this New York case. He was asked and other, his sons and daughters were asked to take a deposition on his business practices and they repeatedly asserted their Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate themselves. And the Supreme Court has ruled that in a case called Baxter in 1976, that you do not have a Fifth Amendment right in civil context because the text of the Constitution is clear. And when you invoke the Fifth Amendment right in a civil case, the judge or jury can make an inference um, that that basically the question that you are asked, that they can make an inference about um, your dealings in that matter, an adverse inference to the person that was making that asserted their right. So basically, in this case, when Trump um, asserted his Fifth Amendment right, the state of New York can make an adverse um, inference about what that means in the context of the civil lawsuit. Right. 
So this is settled case law. There's no debate about legally you can do this. I don't like her doing it in this context, and I'll explain my thinking why, and you can respond to it. The, the litigation is for civil context. This is not Charlie Bob suing Rocky Doc over whatever happened in a civil court. This is the attorney general of the state of New York. This is also the attorney general. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Who We've got lots of video briefly talking about how she's going to sue Donald Trump. When you're that person in that role, because, and I want to make this point really clear, she's the AG. She is not a prosecutor. She's a state AG. Those two things are very different things, although there's some overlapping power there. When you're the state AG and you've got that kind of political stuff on what's going to be a political case, and again, I'm not defending Donald Trump. If he's guilty, let's have the trial and get him guilty on it. I have no doubt there's probably some malfeasance there. But you're the sitting elected chief legal officer of the state of New York. I don't like this terminology. I don't like how it's used here. And because we have a legal system that is shot through of instances of people using their own rights against them as admissions of guilt. Am I wrong for having a flag and going, wait a minute, I don't like how this looks, even though legally it's okay to do it. Yeah, I think that you can definitely have that view of that this does not look good, especially when we don't know what the end game is here. She very much likely wants to pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is prob probably trying to protect himself um, from a future criminal case against him from the state of New York. So he's probably been advised by his attorneys that we're not too worried about this civil case right here. So we're gonna assert our Fifth Amendment rights because we're more concerned about what happens down the road in a possible criminal case. So therefore I think you're, yes, you're very right that this probably doesn't look good from her, but it's something that she has to do legally, um, put this in her complaint talk, uh, and talk about it because basically, when Trump's going to file a motion to dismiss this civil lawsuit, and by her putting it in her complaint that he asserted her Fifth Amendment right, that basically immunes her complaint from being dismissed, you know, as soon as Trump files his motion to dismiss. Because in a motion to dismiss context, any um, questions of law and fact have to be um are ruled in her favor because Trump would be filing the motion to dismiss. So basically by her putting this in her complaint, which she did about six times, she mentions Trump's, the Trump's asserting their fifth amendment rights that basically immunes her complaint from being dismissed by a court. So that would move the lawsuit forward. I think this is an important point because I, I, I feel like I've been saying this for a couple of years because every Trump story is we've really got him this time, right? I keep telling people, if you really want to get Donald Trump, let's just be adults here. Yeah, yeah, it's not fair. You can say whatever you want about it. When you've got a politically charged thing, especially when it's somebody like Donald Trump, the facts on the ground just are when you go to do a prosecution or a civil lawsuit or whatever the case may be, you've got to do it quicker and cleaner and more upright than anything else because it's going to have more scrutiny. That's just the facts on the ground. That's kind of true for any high profile civil case or litigation in general. Is it not fair to say that we really should be paying attention? It, it's not a nothing to blow these things up when they announce them like this. It, there's a something to these sorts of things, isn't it, that need to be discussed? Yeah, I think there's something that needs to be discussed. I'm not sure she's too confident, honestly, in her case because she referred it to the Department of Justice. And if you actually read the complaint, it's about 300 pages worth of accounting practices. 
which is going to be the most boring thing for a jury or a judge to sit through. And I'm not sure the state of New York has better accountants than former President Trump. So I think one of the reasons they are doing this and referring it to the Department of Justice is hopefully to bring this case out a little bit and get some better lawyers possibly on it at the Fed federal level. Yeah, Travis next join us. Okay, now you are one of those people. You like stuff like that. You like reading through business law and things like this. Everybody knows that everybody pushes the tax code. They pushes their loan stuff. Everybody's fudges a little bit. Where's the line between malfeasance and criminality when it comes to things like overvaluing your property for a loan or undervaluing property for tax? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about in this complaint in the civil suit for the most part. Where's the line? I know legally that changes some for jurisdictions for jurisdiction, but just generally speaking, so people can get their heads around it. What are you looking for when you're looking at stuff like this? So in this case, there's federal accounting rules called GAAP that you have to follow when doing any type of financial disclosure. Um, there's some fuzzy lines with GAAP, but they're pretty strict rules that accounts that accounts have to follow. Accounts are normally very conservative when doing valuations and making sure they're following GAAP. So basically, we're just looking, they're going to have to see whether or not any potential misuse of these accounting principles led to all these damages and led to $250 million worth of fraud that she's claiming the state of New York was defrauded out of. The, shifting through the complaint, which I did for a little bit, that's going to be hard to prove. Like one of her examples, she said of Trump had a 10,000 square foot property that he claimed was 30,000 square feet. Well, even if that's true, that doesn't get you the $250 million worth of fraud. There's a lot of lines that need to be connected, and I'm not sure they're going to be willing or able to do that, especially assuming that President Trump's accountants have very strong uh, paperwork on the procedures they followed and everything that they did, which I'm sure they do. Yeah. One quick question before we let you go. There's been the accusations that this is a placeholding legal action, that she's just putting something with her name on it, pending something else coming down the road. We know there's DOJ referrals. We know there's other investigations in the other aspects of the Trump organization, the Weisenberg stuff, which she actually referenced here. We know about the other things that Donald Trump is accused of. Does that feel like what this is? Do you feel like this is one of those things that kind of disappears in a year or two and gets buried in litigation? Or do you see this getting seen out? I, I think it's eventually going to go to uh, trial and go before a judge or jury, whatever Donald Trump chooses, because I don't think President Trump is going to settle this case. It's not going to be dismissed by a judge because there's too many factual disputes on what are the proper procedures followed, what was actually done by his accountants. So unless she dismisses it, which I don't think she's going to do, this isn't going to go away without a judge's verdict, judge or jury's verdict. How much uh, exposure does Trump have here, do you think? Uh, I think some of the remedies she's proposing are flatly just not based on law and possibly unconstitutional. You're talking about that you'd be banned from doing business in the state ever again, which was almost ludicrous on its face, frankly, even if he was convicted of it. You, I don't think you could do that. That kind of stuff you think is overshot. Yeah, that's complete ridiculous. The $250 million we'll have to see. I mean, that's so that would be what Trump and his 
organization as kids are potentially liable for. We'll see whether or not they have proof to get to that amount. But, so the, but the chance of winning the case is there. It's, it's possible. It, yeah, it's very possible. It's not going to get dismissed. It's not going to go away. So it's a viable, it's probably a viable legal case. And we're just going to have to see where it goes. But yeah, it's not going to be dismissed in a month, within a year, anything like that. I just don't see it happening. Yep. All right. Do what Travis did. Read this for yourself. We're going to get it posted up. We have the full press conference up at Ordinary Dash Times as well. And we'll keep bringing Travis back to talk about it because he's really good on stuff like this and smart. So when I pop off about something I shouldn't have said, he'll text me, correct me, and we'll come on and talk about it. Travis, let folks know where they can follow you until the next time I say something stupid on Twitter and you need to straighten me out. Easiest way to follow me is uh, on Twitter at tnix113. Thank you yep. so much for having me on again. Hey, good to see you again, buddy. We'll get you on again soon. Appreciate the time, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, been a minute since we had him. Let's go up to the Northeast, see what them folks up there have been up to. They've done some voting here lately, and just because everybody thinks it's solid blue, there's actually some really interesting political things going on up there. Great to welcome our friend back, Adam Bass. He's a reporter. He's with the North Star Reporter up in Attleboro. That's in Massachusetts, for those of you from Logan, and elsewhere that aren't mass holes. How are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Thank you for having me on once again, Andrew, and great to be part of the show once more. See, this is the thing. Let's just start right there. I'm joking about it, but it is true. You know, the national narrative has kind of moved away from the Northeast for the most part, although, you know, they still talk about New York and things like this. People just kind of write off and go, oh, well, New England, it's solid blue. Why bother politically? We had the primaries there a couple of weeks ago. Didn't get a whole lot of press. There's actually some interesting stuff going on in New England politics these days. Yeah, there is. Uh, I will say there has been a lot of reporting on the New Hampshire uh, primary and the upcoming election since it is one of the big, and I say this in quotes, competitive races. Uh, for the for a while, uh, Maggie Hassan, who is the incumbent senator of New Hampshire, looked to be the most vulnerable senator uh, in the Democratic uh, incumbencies. But the problem is, is that former governor, or excuse me, incumbent governor, Chris Sununu, a Republican, decided, you know, I want to stay as Republican. I'm not going to listen to uh, minority Senate leader Mitch McConnell to run. I'm going to stay here. So now she's facing uh, a retired uh, member of the army, that being Don Baldock, for Senate. And she is looking to win the race right now. Anything can happen. But, you know, New Hampshire is going to be a very interesting place to look at because, as you said, it's not a dark blue state. I would say it's more cobalt. For those who are not familiar with color theory, that's a very light blue, uh, bordering on to a more lavender side. But uh, look, Art and political science, two different things. <laughs> and the thing is, is that Maggie Hassan really going to go up uh, hard against Mr. Balduck and really going to make this race all about where he stands on issues such as abortion and basically keeping the government outside of New Hampshire, specifically an abortion ban or uh, intruding on rights, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, in New Hampshire, for folks that you know, a little bit younger, 
that used to be a decently conservative northeastern state. Um, it started to flip. Kerry barely beat W in 2004 there. I think it was two points or less. Before mm-hmm. that, the elder Bush won it outright. This, there was a lot of conservatives and, and a healthy, very healthy, very competitive Republican Party in the state of New Hampshire. That seems to have been gone now. Did see A lot of people were looking at Sununu as kind of the last hope or maybe the next step of bringing back the party. With him not going to the national level, it feels like maybe that state's just going to go blue and that's going to be it for at least a couple of cycles, if not a generation. Does that feel like it there? Sort of. See, the thing about New Hampshire and its conservatives are what I would like to call independence with common sense. So as I said, one of the big things about New Hampshire is that they like their privacy. They like to do what they like, but they don't like extremism on either the Republican side or the Democratic side. That's why you see someone like um, the current incumbent of the first New Hampshire district, Tom Pappas, sort of go against President Joe Biden's um, college uh, debt relief plan. Um, He says it's a bit too much. It doesn't really help those who are hard workers and union workers up in New Hampshire. Uh, Ann Custer, a little also a little more wary about that plan. She represents the second district. Both are Democrats. But the thing is, is that the Republicans that represented New Hampshire and were sort of the backbone are turning into what's called free staters. Now, these are the people who are very, very libertarian, would rather, you know, have no government at all. There was an article in the New York Times that said that one free stater said democracy is a form of communism, which is basically they don't like it. They don't like having big government at all. But at the same time, New Hampshire voters want common sense government. Uh, Again, these are the voters that really did well uh, or live in areas like Manchester, Nashua, those suburban uh, wealthier towns uh, by the southeast part of New Hampshire. The MAGA types, Make American Great Again types, they don't really gel unless they're in very... Uh, low college educated uh, towns below the college educated line. And that's sort of the problem. You're running out of space to do that in New Hampshire. So while I don't think it's going to be dark, dark blue like Massachusetts or even Rhode Island, I do think it's going to be a cobalt blue, a state that prefers these common sense Democrats who want to keep people's rights, but also not to go full hog in doing full government in New Hampshire. Talk about a neighboring state up there that we don't talk about politically a whole lot, but they are darker blue than that. Uh, Rhode Island, they also did some voting. You mentioned it, though. If you get down past the news, and there wasn't a whole lot of news because who talks about Rhode Island unless you're going to Rhode Island, right? No, well, There's some interesting things going on there, and you highlighted one race in particular. That's correct. So the big race in Rhode Island, aside from the governor's race, which was really close in the primary, the big race that national pundits and reporters like to talk about is Rhode Island's 2nd District. Now, this is the 
western part of Rhode Island and all the way down to the bottom of the state. You have, for the Democratic side, Seth Magaziner. On the Republican side, uh, Cranston Mayor Alan Fung. Now, people saw this as a very competitive race after Jim Lavigin uh, decided to retire. But the thing is, is that I don't see a red win. I see a red herring there. Rhode Island's 2nd District contains parts of Providence, Westerly, and, of course, Cranston. And the problem is that those places have voted relatively Democratic for years. And, you know, people were talking about this race when Joe Biden's, uh, President Joe Biden's approval were, were not very strong uh, in the low, low 40s, not to this 45, 44 where he is now. And people were thinking maybe Alan Fung, who is this sort of uh, moderate Republican that New England is known for, will do well there. But the problem is that uh, Kevin McCarthy, minority, uh, uh, minority leader of the House, has attached himself to this race. And the problem is that if you're going to run as a moderate Republican in Massachusetts, or excuse me, Rhode Island, you're going to need to buck the party heart. I'm going to give an example you're very familiar with. Uh, your senator, Joe Manchin. Now, he is, you know, he's a West Virginian icon. But what he's known for is running as Joe Manchin first, a Democrat second. Same with Charlie Baker up here, our governor. A Republican, or excuse me, Charlie Baker first, a Republican second. When you're running as a House member, you're part of an ant colony, uh, in, in metaphorically. You're part of the party. So unless Alan Fung says, look, stay away from me. I do not want to be a part of this. I'm going to run on my record as mayor of Cranston. Go away. But he's not. He hasn't really done that. He sort of said, all right, I'll be a part of the party because that's what House members do. And I don't think it's going to go well in places like Westerly, which is the southernmost part of Rhode Island, certainly not in parts of Providence. And maybe he'll do well in Cranston, but I don't know if it's going to be enough in an R plus two year, which is what people are projecting, and a Republican plus two year, which is what people are projecting to be this midterms uh, makeup. Yeah, it's a good point and a good idea. The thing about Joe Manchin, let's loop this back to New Hampshire for a minute. It wasn't that those folks really changed. The Republican Party moved away from them. It's not that Joe Biden changed. He's very much of one of the old blue dog Democrats, he used to call it. The Democratic Party changed, and the people in West Virginia, a lot of those people would still be blue dogs, but the cultural stuff went too fast, or pick whatever you want, and the party moved away from them. So it went from blue to red. New Hampshire went red to blue, or is going that way. It's the same thing with some of these individual House races, and politics is still local, and you mentioned it. Some of this isn't really the population changing that much. It's just they're having to adjust with the candidates they're being presented in front of them, and thus they make adjustments. And then that's why we talk about these things. You know, the, these things are not set in stone. They may be completely different the next cycle because you put a different candidate in front of them. Right. Candidate quality still matters. And if Democrats do keep the Senate, that will be the main, I think, the main uh, moral, the Aesop fable of the midterms. Uh, candidate quality still matters. And in house races, not so much because again, those are those are like an ant colony. They work together. But in the Senate, it's like a bunch of grasshoppers. To again, to use the Aesop fable metaphor, um, they're all individuals. They all want to show who they are, and that makes it a little easier for them to, I guess, run against the grain. But I will, I will challenge you on the idea that people haven't changed. That's not entirely true. Uh, more union workers, and again, people that do not have a college education, 
they used to vote Democrats, now they're voting Republican, but that's more of the realignment. But in some ways, the core values of the state has not changed in terms of New Hampshire or Rhode Island. Yeah, Adam Bass joining us. Fair enough point. We'll hash that out some other time, though, because I want to ask you about your home state, Massachusetts. Uh, some interesting stuff going on up there politically. Again, here's a deep blue state, probably maybe the bluest of blue states, especially, you know, the Boston area, this sort of thing. Why should the greater country pay attention to things like Massachusetts? Uh, not just because, you know, the governor is going to run for president because he's got nothing better to do coming no, up. No, he's not. But in, you really <laughs> think he's not going to run? No, he's not. He's done. Um, Charlie Baker has no path to run for president. He's shown no I didn't say he's going to win. I'm just saying there's a lot of people that want him to run. I could name you names of some players that are really pushing him to run. You still think he's not going to do it? No, he's done. There's been reporting that, you know, he he was convinced by his wife um, to say, look, we're done. We don't want to be harassed by these right-wingers in Massachusetts anymore because they've been protesting outside of our house in Swamp Scott. And, you know, Charlie Baker just wants to move on with his life. Um, if you want a Republican from a blue state to run for governor, your best chance is Larry Hogan, who's really itching. Uh, Larry Hogan's from Maryland, by the way. He's yeah. really itching to run, even though, again, no real path for him. No. No, he'll get a three, but I'll, I'll warn you. Let me give you some journalistic advice real quick. Gail Manchin was telling everybody that would listen two days prior to Joe saying he was staying in the Senate. You want to bring up Joe Manchin? Gail was telling everybody they were moving back to Charleston, and then he dropped that on Monday morning. So be careful riding with that one, buddy. All I'm going to, you may be right. I may be wrong. We'll see how good. No, either way, though, uh, they don't have a path. But putting that aside, Massachusetts always been a little weird. Every now and then, it seems like every third or fourth cycle, something surprises us out of Massachusetts. Um, doesn't look like that's going to be the case this cycle, though. Although, within the blue on blue stuff, you said there was a little bit of intrigue going on here. Yes, there is. So, to put it bluntly, what's going on in Massachusetts is that while the core value, again, while the core values of the state aren't changing, the, the makeup and demographics of the state Senate, the state House, and the executive branch are going to change drastically. On the Democratic side, look who we have. Maura Healey, Attorney General, who's probably going to be the first uh, lesbian elected as governor uh, in, in the country. You have her running mate, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll. You have the Attorney General, uh, Andrea Campbell, former Boston City Councilor, probably going to be Massachusetts' first black female Attorney General. And state auditor candidate, uh, state senator for Methuen, Diana DiZaglio. Now, what do those four have in common? They're women. Massachusetts used to be the old boys club, but now we're starting to put the she in political machine. And in that regard, that's kind of big. You know, Massachusetts used to be a homogenous of Irish white Democrat, Irish white male Democrats, um, and maybe some Italians here and there. But now we have an executive branch that's go that's probably going to beat the Republican uh, lineup with Jeff Deal and Leah Al Colin, Alan, Alan Cole, excuse me. Uh, and that way, that's going to be kind of big to see four out of the five um, executive branch members be female. In the House, uh, it's becoming more open to candidate or excuse me, uh, politicians of color. You know, when Diana DeZoglio won her primary uh, against um, uh, Chris Dempsey, 
the person who succeeded her was a city councilor from Lauren who's Hispanic. And he's going to be the first person of color to represent that seat. So that's huge. And also, there's a sheriff race going on where a candidate, uh, Paul Haro from Attleboro, is going up against 25-year incumbent Todd, uh, Tom Hodgson's. And that could be a close race, too. I'm going to keep an eye on that one because, A, people are a little uh, weary of Hodgson's, especially since all the MAGA stuff is going on down there. And, B, this is the first time a candidate from northern Bristol County is going up against Hodgson's. It's always been someone from Fall River and New Bedford, the two uh, southern cities of Massachusetts. So, you know, keep an eye here. Even though on a macro level it doesn't change much, on a micro level, everything matters here. There is going to be change in what things look like. Not how things are done, maybe that's going to take a little while, but certainly what our representatives look like. And if we're going to have a uh, a system where nothing changed, then at least let's have our uh, representatives look uh, like they represent us. Yeah, and there was a there was a very real thing for a long time, especially in Boston. Just because you're deep blue and very progressive doesn't mean the diversity was keeping up with the rhetoric, and it looks like that's finally starting to change. It, it'll be slow, though. Uh, nothing, nothing is going to, you know, the thing is, is that change takes time, and that's, I think, one of the big problems with you know, people's thinking, especially in a day and age where, you know, information comes at the click of a button at this moment. Just because information is traveling quick doesn't mean change well, but it will come. It will definitely come. Yeah. Adam Bass, our brand local reporter, always love to have good local perspective on things. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, especially if they, for some reason, want to follow from Massachusetts or you just got to get somebody in there to balance it out. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on again, my friend. Sure. You can follow me at Adam Bass of Mass on Twitter.com. You can also follow me uh, at the North Star Reporter, so at NSTAR Reporter. And also follow me, my friends Jesse Hahn, Logan Rabe, and Jack Leary on our podcast, The Cod Cabin, at The Cod Cabin. We talk about Massachusetts politics, have guests on, and, you know, we have a good time there. We love our Commonwealth. It's not a state. It's a Commonwealth. But, you know, and we talk about all the time there. So, yeah, once again, Andrew, thank you for having me on. Yeah, check out the podcast. Follow him. He's got a cool little local reporting thing about the language inside of how his town is set up, how it may mess up elections. That's the kind of local reporting you really need to pay attention to. And just because it's in your that small town, you might want to look at your cities and small towns because I bet you you might have the same problem. Good job there, buddy. We'll talk soon. Adam Bass, see you soon, buddy. Take care. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, here's a fun one. Uh, Twitter buddy for a long time. They put out some polling. I had a question about it. He said, hey, you got a question about it? Let's talk about it. I said, do you want better? Come on the show. We'll talk about it. Uh, Jacob Perry, if you don't know him, he's been in politics for 20 years, inside him, outside him, analyzing them. He's now a Center Street Pack. How are you, buddy? Good to see you. I'm good, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right. The one that got everybody's attention, and we'll go through the rest of the polling data because you, you've been a political guy for a long time, especially Florida, because you know that race inside now. We'll talk about that in a minute. The one that got my attention was the Arizona Senate polling race. Now, obviously, sure. this is a big ticket race. A lot of people paying attention to it. Um, the Polling USA poll that y'all did with conjunction with Center Street, Kelly 55, Masters 35. Governor race, Hobbs 53, Carrie Lake 39. And all I said, I wasn't even being critical. I just said that doesn't feel right. And I use feel sure. on purpose. That doesn't feel right. Now, to my, you've done politics for a long time. You know my way of thinking. 
That's a 49-49 state last election. Those are both Trump adjacent candidates. Both are endorsed by Trump. So to think that they're going to be 14 and nine points off what Trump did, that just doesn't feel right. Tell me what we're missing here that your number's a little different. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to issue a caveat, and I'm going to start off by saying um, we do all of our own polling. So we don't, we don't outsource it to a polling firm. This is all literally internal. Um, our data guy is Dr. Kurt Jetta, who has basically is the guy who invented uh, consumer data aggregation. I, I actually explained to people that, you know, if you go to your local supermarket and you see the stuff that's, uh, that's a BOGO item, um, Kurt's firm is actually the one that tells people what to do. So we, because we're not a polling firm, we don't do horse race polls. And this is what I always have to try to explain to people. We, the data that we gather and that we analyze is for our internal use as far as targeting and which races we're going to you to pursue and how we're going to, um, you know, write the advertising, the messaging we're going to use, the mediums we're going to, you know, put the advertising on. Um, I mean, for example, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we did a, a pretty significant six-figure buy in Ohio. And that advertising was intended to target um, females between 40 and 55, I believe, right? Kind of unaffiliated or kind of unsure or whatever. Um, that was a pretty significant six-figure buy, but it was based on the data that we have that that is the most movable segment in that race, right? So long caveat aside, what I'm going to tell you is our polling has been very consistent in terms of and they brand themselves as ultra MAGA, right? So the ultra MAGA versus a traditional Republican candidate are two very different things. And what we have seen in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Arizona, to some extent, uh, Georgia, which is another one that we just released. Um, those are candidates that are pretty extreme. Those are candidates who, you know, are, you know, anti-immigrant. They're anti, you know, they all believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, they all sort of poo-poo the January 6th insurrection. And I would contrast that with a Marco Rubio, who is a more traditional Republican and who is actually um, has a pretty solid lead on Val Demings. So in Arizona, Blake Masters, who is maybe the most extreme candidate of all of them, um, the most extreme views, the most ultra MAGA of all of them, who was running against a legit American hero, by the way, you know, an actual, you know, you and I are old enough to remember like astronauts are pretty cool dudes. Um, and they're the kind of guys that are walking down the street that you look up and go, holy crap, that's an astronaut. So I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a masters is I'm going to respectfully say a borderline white nationalist. Um, and maybe not borderline, but based on his statements and things that he's on record, um, he's pretty extreme. But then you've got Mark Kelly, who is, um, has an extremely, frankly, remarkably high favorability rating in Arizona. So it's kind of a combination of the two things. What I always say to everybody is, in 30 years or so of working in politics, every election takes place in a vacuum. So what happened two years ago, four years ago, you have to take that in context of what was going on two years ago and four years ago. And what you're seeing now in this particular context of this cycle 
is a lot of extremist candidates who have very high unfavorability ratings. Yeah. And to be clear, I think both of those people are unfit for office, just to be frank about it. The other part of the Kelly thing that people don't talk about, but I hear it every time I bring it up, talking to people behind the scenes is he's been just an absolute money machine. He's one of the biggest fundraisings in the entire Democratic Party, not just in the Senate. Um, He's printing money. So when you have the can, and I'm going to lump Masters and Lake here big together because they basically are a ticket for all practical purposes out there. They're running together, campaigning together. I think they're both unfit for office, but it is what it is. Is the story here from what you're seeing? Because again, you admit you're looking at the data differently than what a pollster is in the horse race, and that that has its pros and cons. Is what we're seeing here, big picture wise, just for the average person without getting into the weeds of the data that when you try to out Trump Trump himself and you're not named Trump, that ceiling that shoot people on fifth Avenue number, whatever you want to call it, that number starts going down. The more you go into that territory. And that's what you're starting to see in some of these center races that frankly shouldn't be close looking at you, JD Vance in Ohio. Right. And the Republicans are struggling. Is that the lesson here that you're taking away from it? Cause that kind of seems how it feels. Yeah. And I think, again, the the fact that and we're not involved, at least at the moment, in the Florida Senate race, but we're tracking it as a way to sort of buttress our results. Right. So we can compare and contrast this theory of the ultra MAGA versus the more mainstream Republican. Um, And again, it's Florida. I get it. But you're right. I mean, in, in an ordinary year, and I think this is where some of the controversy came from in an ordinary year, J.D., you know, the Republican candidate in Ohio should be up eight or nine points, right? Like we're, we're not pretending otherwise. Um, but in our data, and I don't know if we've reported this in any of our stuff, and I'm just going to tell you, and maybe this isn't exclusive for your audience, the one negative response that comes back from our surveys regarding J.D. Vance is phony. And you're almost a Midwesterner. I mean, you're kind of border Midwesterner. I grew up in Indiana. Um you know, in in the Midwest, we tend to prefer, you know, genuine people. We tend to prefer, you know, this is why the Midwest is a very different place than anywhere else in the country. It's a very down-to-earth. People are pretty normal. People are friendly. They know their neighbors. And the, the constant response that keeps coming back on J.D. Vance is phony. And when you compare that to a Tim Ryan, who isn't a extreme left-wing, you know, he's not Elizabeth Warren. He's much of a he's much more of a blue dog, kind of an old school Joe Biden type. Right. So the combination of two things is what's giving you a fairly surprising result. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Yeah. Uh, Jacob Perry joining us. Real quick, two other races I want to ask you about while I got you on the line. Uh, you just mentioned it, so let's talk about Rubio. You got him up about five points. Again, just somebody that watches this and somewhat reads on, tries to keep up with it and talks to people. That felt right when I saw it. Um, DeSantis is probably going to win his race, so there's going to be some yeah. flow over there. Rubio's, <laughs> his national brand's been damaged, but he's pretty still in the main line for a Florida senator with all things considered. Charlie Chris yeah. is going to be the first person in recorded human history to lose a race as a Republican, Democrat, and an independent. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> But that feels right. You know Florida inside and out. You live there. Does does that one feel like that's probably going to be about what it is? Maybe Demings might get a little surge depending, or she might fall off depending on how the economy and Biden and all that goes. But this kind of feels like what it's been all along and where it's going to end up. The problem that, that Val is running into, Congresswoman Demings is running into, um, and I apologize. Sometimes, it's, you know, we're, we're doing the constant conversations all day. They're shorthand that we use. Um, Congresswoman Demings just doesn't have a very high name ID. And obviously Senator Rubio does. And so that's actually been the biggest, and, and our model is weighted towards favorability and name ID, right? Which is why sometimes we're a couple points ahead of everybody else. And what we've seen is consistently Congresswoman Deming's name ID and favorabilities have been relatively flat. There's been a couple of waves, if you will, but it's been relatively flat and she was making some good, some decent gains. And then quite honestly, instead of telling her story, um, she started going negative and voters have kind of mixed feelings about that stuff. And so instead of using that opportunity to tell her story, she's got a remarkable story, went to a segregated elementary school, you know, started out as a beat cop in Orlando, became police chief. Like she has an incredible story and she's not telling her story. And so, because of that, that's allowed Senator Rubio, who has a, a pretty significant cash advantage, to define her instead of, you know, it's the age old thing. She's, she's not defining herself. He's defining her. One more race I wanted to ask you about. Uh, down in Georgia, uh, Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, Herschel Walker. Uh, you got Warnock up a little bit. I've been on the island since last January of 2020 being like, no, y'all y'all need to understand Warnock's going to be a really hard out because that race got really ugly and personal and the national media didn't cover it because of all the Trump stuff. But that that was an ugly, ugly race. The reason I wanted to ask about it is Herschel Walker, though. His numbers have actually started improving. We've been to J.D. Vance. This is not my opinion. This is source. I've talked to multiple people about this. You've heard the exact same stories. J.D. Vance has absolutely refused to take any help from any wing. I'm talking conservative, moderate. The libertarians reached out to him. He's refusing anybody helping him, and his campaign's been a mess. All of a sudden, about six weeks ago now, Herschel Walker took outside help, and Mm -hmm. it's showing, and his numbers are getting better. I bring that up because that's going to be an important contest as he tries to tighten this up and tries to knock off Senator Raphael Warnock and what's going to be a really close, really – Hopefully it's not as ugly as 2020. We'll see. But that's the difference in the numbers there is Herschel. Somebody got a hold of him and said, hey, you need some help. Let's get some folks in here. Yes. And, and, and look, let's be honest. It's Georgia. Right. And, and, and I'm sitting, you know, 45 minutes from the Georgia state line. So I'm not exactly unfamiliar with Georgia and Georgia politics. I mean, this is the, this is the state that elected Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. So it is Georgia. Herschel Walker played for University of Georgia. Um, was a you know an incredible hero back in the early '80s in Georgia. Still has remarkable name ID. Senator Warnock 
if I, I have to be really honest, is probably a little too far on the left. Um, or at least, you know, we talked about Arizona, right? Senator Kelly has done an excellent job of being, you know, let's call it left of center, right? Like relatively center, left of center, probably left on some things, but hasn't gone completely off the reservation. Senator Warnock has a much more liberal voting record. And again, it is Georgia. And it's Georgia. <laughs> right? Like, it's Georgia. I don't know. And, it, it's, and like, it's one of the reason you're saying it's Georgia is because you have Atlanta and you got everything else. Correct. Atlanta exactly is rapidly right. diversifying. It's rapidly going purple. It's one yep. of the most dynamic cities in a yep. lot of ways. And that's yep. showing politically. And then you got everything else, which is the rural part of Georgia, which is still deep red country. Yeah. And then you so got this outlier of Herschel Walker, who's a, let's just call it what it is. He's a celebrity candidate with no background. Yep. And you have a, a very traditional progressive up through the ranks, you know, ministerial background, social justice background, progressive. Yep. He's being authentic about it, by the way, which is why he doesn't yeah. get dinged on it, because that is who he is. Absolutely. I mean, this is almost like a political class theory on how to do a race on a celebrity candidate and a well-grained one in a very changing, rapidly changing state. And that's why I get exactly what you're saying. And the folks will, too, when you're saying it's Georgia. Nobody's right. got a handle on what Georgia is right now if they're just honest yeah. about it. No. And, and, and what is it? Is it Marietta County? That's the, the very the next north of Georgia or of Atlanta, obviously, Georgia. Um, yeah, the, the Buckhead you know, where the Brave Stadium, Stadium is. is and, yeah. 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 It's a mess. Like that. That's becoming more purple. I mean, we we actually tracked uh, a couple of races in Georgia. We looked at playing in uh, the MTG district, for example. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Georgia over the past uh, almost year now, I guess. Um, you're exactly right. Like, like Senator Warnock has to carry Fulton County, like, by a landslide. Has to carry, you know. Which he will, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he will. But, but the time that I spent in northwest Georgia, Rome, kind of that area, which is where uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district is, um, that is the lowest vaccination percentage, COVID vaccination percentage in the country, right? So, and that's 45 minutes north of Atlanta, northwest of Atlanta. So it is Georgia, and he is Herschel Walker. Like, if it was someone else, if it was Jeff Duncan, for example, the outgoing lieutenant governor, this would be a very different race. And, and I have a lot of respect for, for Lieutenant Governor Duncan. This would be a very different race. But it's kind of the same dynamic we have here locally in Tallahassee, where I'm at, where you have a candidate for state Senate who played football at Florida State. Well, you know, Bob unless they find right off the jump. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, unless they find the body of a four-year-old girl in the back of his car, like he's pretty much guaranteed election. And Georgia and Georgia football or whatever, you know, whatever Herschel Walker has said, whatever crazy statements he's made, whatever, the more he keeps his mouth shut and the more he does private events that are off the record, whatever, he's probably going to win this thing by four to six points. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch either which way. Uh, Jacob Perry, appreciate the quick time. Get you back on here again. Uh, let folks know what you've got going on here with Center Street Pack again. Again, y'all ain't biased. You're out here with doing what you're doing, but you do it well. Oh. Uh, let folks know where they can find what you're doing and what you're doing. We're going to link to the polling, the actual polling, not just the tweets, because they do have their information in the bottom, which is always a sign of a good poll. Let folks know we where share. they can follow you until we talk again. No, I appreciate that. We share everything. We're very open about uh, the data that we that we analyze, that we gather. Um, it's at Center Street Pack uh, on Twitter, centerstreetpack.com on the web. 
Um, and then I am at real Jacob Perry. Um, if you are predisposed to following somebody crazy on Twitter, <laughs> we bump heads on some things we agree on other, but it's always entertaining, buddy. Uh, especially Absolutely. during English, English soccer season and football <laughs> over there, because that wall doesn't have it, but he does have some paraphernalia. We'll just leave it at that. Jacob, thanks for the time today, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks brother. Thanks for having thanks, me on. Sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.